Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Friday morning, December 22nd, 843-661-0937 is our number. Good morning, Josh. Good morning. Morning, Royal Rev of Radio. Good morning. If you have some disgruntlement, if you have some concern, if you have an opinion you'd like to express before 2024 opens up and you won't wake up Carolina to be the conduit, better get off your duff. I mean, you better get up and rolling and, um, and get inspired about something because today is it. Um, four hours today, and we're out of here until January 2nd, if I'm not mistaken. I was bummed out about January 2nd, coming back to work. Not coming back to work. I, that doesn't bum me out. I mean, I thank God in heaven, and I mean this sincerely. I thank the good Lord I've got a job. I get paid. Um, it's something I enjoy doing. But I was told that the the semifinal championship games in college football were that Monday night, January 1st. And that bummed me out because I'm thinking about one game will start at about 4, the other started about 8. I mean, that means it'll get over at 11.30 or 12. And I don't stay up that late for anybody, including Michigan and Alabama. <laughs> right. um, but now I've been told the games are Saturday night, Josh. I know that's a big deal in your world. The games are Saturday night. So we've got Sunday. I couldn't and, believe it. Yes, yeah, Sunday, <laughs> Sunday and Monday. Um, to recover. So um, I'm not bummed out about coming January 2nd or coming back January 2nd. I'm talking about coming back January 2nd. We haven't left yet. But, right. uh, but we're leaving today. Go, go get ahead um, of yourself here. I don't want to talk about coming back yeah. already. We're not even on vacation what, what, yet. What is the song? Leaving on a jet airplane? Or leaving on a, a jet, jet plane? plane? Yeah, leaving on a jet plane. We ain't leaving on a jet plane. I'm living in a crew cab pickup. Um, but I ain't coming back till January January the 2nd. Yeah. Uh, uh, same here, by okay, the way. Looking good deal, forward good deal. to it. So, yeah, today's the day. You, you won't have us to kick around next week. So do it today. Get it out of your system. If and we've the, been wrong about things yeah. and we have, correct us. If yep. we've been right about things, um, give us a little high praise. Fair enough? There you go. Okay. Yeah. Let's, let's make deal. a show about us today. Let's I'm just excited it. that I mean the, 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 the game last night did excite me, but we're getting to the bowl season, and it reminds me of my youth. And <laughs> anything that reminds me of my youth, especially right now, I'm all about it. I mean, I want to be reminded oh, yeah. over and over and over and over well, you've about been, my, my younger days. You've been kind of railing uh, at the start of the show, at least, uh, for, for this week about college football because the talk has gone to NIL and how it's changed the game and everything. So, uh, yeah, bowl season is here officially, right? So there's that. Um, but, all right, let's let's get down to, uh, to what really counts. Okay. Uh, signing day. How did our Gamecocks do? The Gamecocks did good if they were in the in a league other than the SEC. <laughs> but their number, okay. well, I mean, it depends on how you look at the recruiting rankings. But, but we are. Well, I mean, it was a smaller class. So nationally ranked, um, I think it was, what, 16, 17, 18, somewhere thereabout in some of the national polling. Um, but, but if you go to the star rating per player, I think it improves to about 10 or 11 or 12, depending on what rating agency um, you trust. But it's still bottom half of the SEC. I mean, you finish 15th, 16th of the country, and your bottom half of the league that you're trying to keep up with, it, it, that's all that matters to me. I mean, how did your peers do? The Gamecocks don't play Pitt. The Gamecocks don't play Ball State. The Gamecocks don't play um, NC State. The Gamecocks play in the SEC. And the 15th, 16th rated recruiting class in America ends up bottom half of the SEC. Um, I'm told from some insiders that still talk to me, um, I'm told that they're <laughs> really? still in hot pursuit of a an offensive lineman and um, 
That was a bit late, but that was good enough, Josh. I mean, I saw you over there fumbling around. Um, I saw you when he realized it. Okay, hot pursuit. That's one of those. That's one of those. That's one of those redneck references he makes. I can you know? feel Dave's eyes. Yeah, that, yeah. trying. That, that to, I'm supposed. I didn't to even this, catch it. That was that this, this corny and cliche thing that they think is cool. But anyway, I'll do it. I'll I'll, I'll oblige. Uh, in the note, um, I'm told they're still looking for a proven offensive lineman who has some SEC experience, and I'm told they're still looking for a a receiver in the transfer portal. See, Rev, you can't look at the high school recruiting rankings as we formerly did. How did you do in the portal? I mean, did yeah, you bring anybody? True. Who'd you lose? I mean, it's it's free agency. And, you know, when you say, well, I mean, we had the 15th best college or the 15th best recruiting class in America. Okay. Well, what if a team had the 25th best recruiting class in America but brought in four really good players in the portal? I mean, they, you know, did you have a better class than they did? So it's a combination of how teams are doing recruiting high school players I mean, there's no doubt that um, Shane is doing good enough there, but how's he doing in the portal? And I think the combination of those two will lead to, um, you know, eventually how you figure this class uh, works itself out. But, uh, you know, as it relates to what you asked about the traditional mm -hmm. high school recruiting, yep. good class, average in the league. Good class okay. across the country. I mean, I think it's 15 or so, and that's a good class. I mean, that's a good class, especially when you went five and seven in the most recent um, college football campaign. I'll say this, and I'll probably get in trouble. And maybe somebody called and correct me. I thought about reaching out to Jason and see if Jason's free after nine because I, I don't want to say things and not be accurate. It seems to me, and there may be a Clemson fan out there that could help me with this. I'm thinking of a few in, in particular. It seems to me that Clemson is recruiting at a good level but not an elite level. But that just seems to me. I mean, I, I made the accusation this most recent football season that Clemson didn't look elite. I mean, they look good, but they don't look elite. Three years ago, they looked elite. Four years ago, obviously, they were elite. National championships, a couple on the in the trophy case to prove they were elite. Doesn't matter what somebody wearing a uh, Under Armour shirt with garnet sleeve says. I mean, we don't care what you say. We know we're elite because we got two trophies in our trophy case that prove we were elite. I said during the season, watching Clemson play, they, they've got some good players, but they don't look elite. Their recruiting class was not elite. I mean, it's good. It's solid. And, and they don't have to deal with the baggage that the Gamecocks do by playing. You know, um, uh, I don't think there's a schedule. I don't think there's a trip to Tuscaloosa on Clemson's schedule. I don't think there's a trip to Norman, Oklahoma on Clemson's schedule. I don't think LSU and Mississippi and um, some of the others are on their schedule. I'm not being, I'm not trying to be a, uh, a homer here, and I'm not trying to say, you know, paint one picture inaccurate from the other. Um, I think Clemson can afford to be good in recruiting and win. The Gamecocks cannot. I mean, they, you got to be better than good in recruiting to win, and, uh, especially with Texas and Oklahoma um, come on board, and they're on board now. Uh, you said earlier this week or last, the oddity of the schedule is not having Florida, Georgia, or Tennessee yeah, on the schedule. I mean, it's been replaced by LSU and Ole Miss. And um, you talked about somebody raked in the transfer portal. Wow. I'll say this. Ole Miss and Missouri. I mean, forget out Alabama and Georgia. Ole Miss and Missouri have a good chance to be in the playoff next year. Either or will be in. I'll make a prediction today. Either Ole Miss or Missouri will be in the 12-team playoff next year. But I think it's a given that more than likely Alabama and Georgia will both be in in the 12-team playoff. 
Ole Miss or Missouri have done such a good job in the portal, such a phenomenal job at raising money for an NIL. I'll give you an example, Rev. I'm told by, by folks in the know that there are about 25 teams in America spending nearly $10 million in the, uh, in the NIL space annually. Um, 10. 10 million. Yeah, 10 million. Um, about seven of those, maybe eight of those are in the SEC. So roughly one-third of all the teams spending, you know, you got Ohio State, Michigan. I think you got Southern Cal, and I think Oregon may be. That's still not money. You know, I mean, write a check. If you need a quarterback, go get him, whatever you got to do. They, they've got to rein this in. I mean, they've got to figure out a way to get it more like the NFL. Um, Arch Griffin is the backup quarterback at Texas. His NIL Pay was three point two million dollars. Arch Griffin, Arch Manning, Arch Manning. I'm sorry, Arch Manning. Arch Griffin won the Heisman uh, <laughs> twice at Ohio State. Uh, Arch Manning is the backup quarterback at Texas. His NIL pay is three point two million at the University of Texas. Brock Purdy more than likely wins the NFL MVP. His pay is less than a million dollars. I mean, he'll get his money. Don't get me wrong. I mean, it's a it's a bit of an oddity. Um, he was a kind of a late-round draft choice, didn't sign a big deal, ends up, you know, surrounded by a plethora of really, really good skilled players. I'm not saying you or I could play quarterback there, but we might do it. I mean, <laughs> really? You know, get, where's that McCaffrey dude and that yeah. Debo dude and that Iac dude and that Kittle dude? I mean, just, you know, get it in their hands and and get out of the way. Make sure you don't get, uh, you don't get hurt. But, no, I mean, long story short, Gamecocks had a good recruiting class to keep up with the Joneses. They need to have great recruiting classes. You hope that's coming. Um, and I'll, I'll tell you the one thing they did do, and I think Clemson did this as well. Um, Kirby Smart said Nick Saban taught him, the way you build winners is to recruit big, strong men or men that can fight through big, strong men. I mean, it's fun to watch receivers. It's fun to watch running backs. It's fun to watch some of the um, some of the versatile, tight end, skilled people. But, but as Kirby Smart said, uh, Nick Saban taught him, Big, strong men or men that can fight through big, strong men is how you win in college football. And um, I think the Gamecocks and Tigers both did um, some of that. 843-661-0937. I did as much on this yesterday as I as I possibly could. And I want to spend a good bit of the morning kind of recapping where there are two things that are on my mind today. Um, two things that we said during the balance of the week that I think are worthy of, of conversation. One is hypothetical, completely and totally hypothetical. I have no idea what the answer to this question is, but I think it's such a curious question to ask. Um, the other is right before our very eyes. I mean, a, a, a state in America elected us or appointed a Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court decided to tell voters in that state, you can vote for who we say, not for who you who you'd like to vote for. I mean, you can't cut it, slice it, dice it any way other than that. Uh, we believe that'll be overturned. Apparently, they believe that's going to be overturned. They put a stay until January 4. That's when the Colorado um, election commissions are to prepare their ballots, make official who's on the ballot, who qualified, who did not qualify, um, who you can vote for, who you can't vote for. The oddity of this is the court said you can't write in Trump. But I mean, that's just showing your hand. I mean, you really, that, that's just pretty wild. I went back and looked last night. I started yesterday afternoon, concluded last night, 
There are 341 state Supreme Court justices in America. 341 state Supreme Court justices. Um, about 61% of those state Supreme Court justices were nominated by Republican governors. I'm not saying they're Republican judges because we know that judges are moral and ethical. We know that judges are not persuaded by political influences or, um, you know, the, uh, I mean, it's a passion for judiciary, right? Yes, I mean, that's why yes, that's they, how you they're become above a all judge. That sure. I mean, that, that's yeah. right. I mean, Jefferson said they were, you know, in his um, endorsement of <laughs> the co-equal branches of government. Right. You know, take that sarcasm for what it's worth. I want to read that this morning at some point in time, exactly what Jefferson said about um, judges and about judiciary being a co-equal branch of government too of the legislative and executive uh, branches. But I went back and looked. 27 states in America today, you could argue, have a Republican Supreme Court. I didn't break it down and see which state and how many electoral votes. And if you keep off the, you see where I'm headed. I mean, if you want to return fire, Josh kind of yeah. likes that idea. I mean, I think I Josh, I mean, Josh's eyes lit up when I said Republicans need to grow a set. I mean, they, they need to return the favor. I mean, the shot across the bow is to the Republican voters in Colorado, and there are some, to the Republican voters in Colorado, the state Supreme Court decides who you can or cannot vote for. Forget front-runner status. Forget inevitable nomination. We say to you, a resident of Colorado, that you can't vote for the guy you choose to vote for despite him not being charged with the crime that we're convicting him of. Engaging in insurrection. That's going to be the key phrase. Engaging in insurrection. Doesn't say convicted. Doesn't say charged. Engaging in an insurrection. They used a lot of the talking points from the January 6th committee or commission which included every single member who in, who voted to impeach Donald Trump. There was not a member on that committee that did not vote to impeach Donald Trump. Most on that committee voted to impeach Donald Trump twice. So, I mean, you know, that that's fair, right? Oh, yeah. No cross-examination. Sounds fair to me. No telling the other side of the story. Oh, yeah. Um, and that's where some of the legal you, – you, you see some of the um, – there are some liberal legal minds out there that still want to have some sense of reputational – uh, re restoration. I mean, they, they don't want to be, hey, hey, you, you guys can say that. I'm not saying that. I mean, it's it's a little bit like, I'll say this, but I'm not saying that. You know, call me this, but don't call me that. Uh, and, and, and I've noticed that, it, that there's a few liberal legal pundits that, that when, when asked by MSNBC or CNN or, well, anybody but Fox and conservative talk radio, and Fox is kind of turning into, anyway, that's a story for another day. <laughs> I want to go down the road of should the Republicans consider returning favor? And what does that look like? I mean, does that burn? I mean, we want disruption, right? I mean, we want chaos. I mean, we've kind of said that. I mean, we've said a lot of the reason we support Donald Trump is we want a political disruptor. We want a chaotic political figure. We don't want normal and order in, in Washington. We think the normal and orderly way of doing things has not been in our best interest. So we kind of want to see things chaotic. That would be chaotic. I mean, if you had a national campaign funded by, let's say, Peter Thiel, just because he's got enough money, and he went around to some of the Supreme Courts and tried to encourage them, put them on the spot, take Biden off the ballot. Take Biden off the ballot. You know who may like that better than anybody? Barack Obama. They're doing something that he thinks he'll eventually have to do. Mm. Take a break. 
Back in a few. Takes Mondays to make Fridays. 843-661-0937 is our number. The one thing the Republicans have done. I mean, we've we've allowed, I don't know if we allowed or not. Maybe we just, I mean, there were certain mindsets that got into certain skills and disciplines. But there's no doubt the media is now overwhelmingly liberal. Academia, for the most part, overwhelmingly liberal. Big tech, overwhelmingly liberal. Corporate America becoming uh, maybe not overwhelmingly liberal, but more liberally biased because of the dependency and relationship and coziness that they need with our, with our federal government. The one place, and I don't know if it's just happenstance or they made a concerted effort, the one place the Republicans have done well is in um, appointing judges and getting judges confirmed. I mean, they've really done a good job there. And I don't know um, who's responsible for this. I would imagine some of these um, conservative organizations that focus um, on judiciary and judges and judge judgeships, um, how they get scored, how good a job they do, how what sort of conservative record um, do they have. But in 1980, only about 30% of the 341 state Supreme Court justices in America were elected by Republican governors. And you would have called them conservative justices. Um, today, that's about 60%. And you throw in the U.S. Supreme Court, I mean, the, you know, 6-3. It, it's not a 5-4 court anymore. I mean, the, the, the person who has less influence, the person in America who went from having the most influence to not anywhere near as much influence is John Roberts. I mean, John Roberts wants to be a statesman. He wants to be revered. He wants to be respected. He doesn't want to be a conservative lion. He doesn't want to be, I mean, he wants to be the guy that they talk about at the dinner party in D.C. 50 years from now that would not let the courts go in a kind of a um, an extreme direction. Now, it's not extreme, but but that's what some of the um, – I mean, he wanted to be more popular inside the D.C. Beltway than at a racetrack in, in Charlotte. I mean, he never and, – and Roberts really uh, – I mean, I still think the Obamacare vote, it's a tax. I mean, I, I think it gave him a, kind of a, a, a landing space but but he wanted i mean fundamentally i think he's wired to believe that obamacare is bad but but he wanted to be revered he wanted to be popular he wanted to be respected he didn't want the wall street journal and the washington post and new york times say that's the guy you know once once barack obama settled the 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 the, the generational long healthcare being a right or not and um you know socialized the healthcare or the health insurance business um he didn't want to be the guy to undo that cuz that would have stained his legacy not at a racetrack in Darlington or a football game in Clemson, but rather inside the Beltway where they eat caviar and drink Dom Perignon. I mean, that, that's <laughs> and how they he talk wanted to, to each be. other about how great they are sure. and what we've done. With two fingers on the glass. Yes. The extended <laughs> pinky. Well, you've seen it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Quite the, um, Heard about it. Quite the masculine trait inside <laughs> inside the Beltway. Um, well, no, no, I'm not saying it. Dana Perino said it. Dana Perino said when she started to realize and she wanted to get married, she got to a point in her life. She had her career in a good place. She'd made her mark, so to speak, and she wanted to get married, start a family. And she said she actively started looking for a husband. And every man in D.C. had soft hands and a pudgy belly. And she didn't want a man with soft hands and a pudgy belly. So she went to Pamplico and found a good old boy. And <laughs> the rest is, as we say, histoire. Um, the good old boy exposed her to a certain different kind of culture, mm. if you know what I mean. 843-661-0937. But the one thing the Democrats have not succeeded at is, and the numbers show this. I know we get frustrated by some of the outlandish rulings that some of these judges and courts made, but 
data and st- data and statistics are data and statistics that it clearly shows that the conservative calls has made inroads and and close a lot of ground in our judiciary. What do they do with it? Josh, what do they do with it? If in 1980, if 43 years ago, at the beginning of the Reagan Revolution, only 30% of state Supreme Court justices in America were nominated and appointed and confirmed by Republicans, that number is now 60%. What do we do with it? Do we abuse the privilege? I mean, if we believe that Colorado basically made a decision not anchored in any sort of jurisprudence, do we ask the Republicans to do the same? I'm tired of not fighting back. Well, I mean, but, but is that no, the right way to fight normally back? Normally, I wouldn't be for it. I'd be like, you know, they're doing wrong there, but I'm not going to, quote, stoop to that level. But now, do it. If Do it. If steroids become legal you have in to. college football tomorrow, I mean, if, if antibiotic steroids and human growth hormones became legal tomorrow and you're the offensive line coach at Clemson in South Carolina, you know in the long run it's not good for that person. I mean, you know that. I mean, I'm talking about an abundance. I, I'm not talking about testosterone supplements. Please understand, I'm talking about anabolic steroids. I mean, if you take anabolic steroids, there are going to be complications eventually in your life probably. I, I think, you know, somebody who gets up in age and needs some testosterone supplement, that's a different animal. I mean, we're not talking about trying to stop big, strong men from getting to your quarterback. I mean, that's a different, different sort of a, a dynamic. But if it's made legal and your job is to win football games, I mean, it's not to be the caretaker of that kid when he turns 60 or 65 years old. What, what do you do? I, I would argue take the steroids. I mean, you do what it takes to win. I mean, you're in the business of winning football games. You're not in the business of, um, of making sure a kid's in good health 60 years or once he's 60 or 65 years old. And, and I just think you've got to consider um, Rev and Josh are fully on board with, you know, yeah, revenge. I mean, serve it up cold. Serve it up. I mean, I you, think just, you have to. In court after court after court. Otherwise, after you're going to keep losing. What, what if the Supreme Court overturns the Colorado decision? Do you still, as the Texas lieutenant governor saying, do you still make an attempt to get your state Supreme Court to take the other guy off the ballot? Well, I guess it depends on the grounds because if the Supreme Court has already ruled that that does not stand. Well, I mean, you're doing it politically. Yeah. You're basically doing it, okay, yeah. you don't believe we'll do this. I mean, that's what the Democrats believe today. They don't believe the Republicans will take steroids. They believe yeah, the Republicans right. will keep doing it the right way, and the right way will cause you to get your ass whipped Saturday after Saturday after after Saturday. And the Democrats today believe that if steroids were made legal, the Republicans would try to do the virtuous and courageous and um and right thing, uh, upstanding, and they would they would obey the Constitution and the orderly way of which we of which we do things. And and I'm saying that the electorate are asking for a, a little more bombast. I mean, the electorate are asking for a little more aggressive personalities to be making some of these decisions. I'm very much in favor of the Texas Supreme Court making an attempt to take Joe Biden off the. I'd love to see the Trump court rule against the Colorado state Supreme Court and then have to rule against the Texas state Supreme Court. I mean, you send a message. Send a message, hey, right? Well, you know, you, you don't think we'll take steroids. We will. I'm good with that. We will. Absolutely. How many um, How many electoral college votes are there in Colorado? How many are there in Texas? 
Be careful what you ask for, now, now, old boy. What would be funny if the Texas Supreme Court ruling was sound and it stood in that case, in that scenario? You know, because, you know, Biden would be, he'd be charged with something, uh, you know, dereliction of duty, not securing the would border. Be, no, yeah, be, it would be versus the neglecting of the, his constitutional responsibility right, to secure the border. Versus the insurrection, you know, charge that Colorado used. So that would be very, that would be best, obviously. <laughs> If it, it would stood be, it would be in, eight, in that hypothetical scenario. 843-661-0937. Take a break. Back in a few. We always leave some loose ends from yesterday's show to today's, and very often I forget about it, and we get going a million miles an hour in a different direction. But but Rev wants to – well, I mean, I say Rev wants to. I mean, he, times Rev gives me more credit than I probably deserve, and if something interests me, he wants to know why. Because if it interests me, it may interest a lot of other mm-hmm. folks. Um the former Ford CEO, Mark Fields, was on CNBC earlier this week talking about the EV transition. I talk a lot about the cozy relationship that big business has created with government. It's always been the case. I mean, there's always been lobbying and consulting and, you know, um, one hand wash the other, they both get clean, that sort of um, that sort of thing. But this is kind of an intriguing interview. It's not provocative it's not in your face it's not wow listen to that sound bite but but it gently tells you how one of these ceos of a fortune 100 company ford motor company deals with the government and how closely connected and constant communicating they are with the government it's just random but i think a lot of you will find it interesting well evs don't really stall I don't think. Uh, Other EV manufacturers are struggling to catch up to the largest maker, uh, Tesla, and gain some market share. Joining us now, Mark Fields, former uh, Ford Motor Company president and CEO, as well as a CNBC contributor. Such a multifaceted discussion where I could come from on this, Mark, just in terms of, uh, you know, the Biden administration and and some of the goals or or some of the mandates that we've set and, and how those are increasingly uh, looking at this point, I, I mean, they better hope uh, about that expression that things happen gradually and then all at once, um, because I don't see it happening nearly as quickly a- as they're banking on. Well, I agree with you 100 percent. You know, we've talked about this a lot over the, the last number of months. I mean, listen, when you when you think about the administration, you know, they've in the Infrastructure Act, let's just do a little math to kind of bring out your point. So the administration and the Infrastructure Act uh, allocated about $7.5 billion to build uh, chargers, about 500,000 chargers. Uh, Very few have been built so far. And part of that is just the the regulatory hoops you have to go to to build them, and part of it's the supply chain. But if you look at a lot of the projections, um, the projections say, listen, by 2030, to meet the, the supposed demand, the U.S. is supposed to have about anywhere between 1.2 million and 1.4 million chargers. Today, the U.S. has about 180,000. So let's take that lower number, the 1.2 million, Joe. That basically says every day between now and 2030, because they say by 2030 you need 1.2 million, you have to be installing every day between now and 20, uh, 20, 2030, 465 chargers per day. I mean, the math doesn't work. And, you know, I think the automakers have recognized that. And what, that's why they pulled back. And listen, it, as we all know, over time, 
the industry here is going to transition to electric vehicles, but it's not going to transition in the time frame everybody originally expected. And that's why you're seeing the automakers pull back on their investments. I was even going to ask you that. I mean, everybody says that. Yeah, we know that sooner or later we are going to. So that's a fact. That's a fact. I mean, up to this point, Mark, and I know I, I, I'll get flack for saying it, but the world we live in right now was made possible by fossil fuels. And the world is unbelievable when you can fly to China and you do this. And you do, I mean, you think of the, the amount of leisure time that we have, how many people are either, you know, warm in the winter or cool in the summer. And you just look at the benefits of, of what it is giving us, given us. You're absolutely sure that within a certain amount of time, the entire world is going to be electrified at that point. Well, you know, Joe, it's a, it's a fact, obviously, you know, fossil fuels are a depleting resource. So at some point we're going to run out. That sounds Malthusian uh, to me. I mean, OK, I, 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 we, <laughs> natural gas. When do you see us running out of, of natural gas? And, and you well, I, I mean, I understand. But but we did. You, you know, Malthus, no one who's ever met uh, made a bet. A Malthusian bet has ever made money on anything. Peak oil. The guy who finally died, the guy who, who kept talking about how that was going to happen, peak oil keeps getting pushed out years uh, at a time. We get more fuel efficient. Uh, maybe it won't be uh, oil, heavy, light, sweet, whatever it is, but natural gas or some type of hydrocarbon. Well, listen, on, on natural gas, again, you need to transition. If you're if you're talking natural gas, you know, there's a lot of investments that the automakers need to make to actually make that happen. And then you lay on top of it a new distribution system, right? You have gas stations today. Now you're getting electric chargers. And then you're assuming, hey, you know, we can build out an infrastructure of natural gas vehicles. I think, listen, it, it, I, I agree. It's going to take a long time. Here's an interesting factoid, Joe. When you look at the tier one powertrain suppliers, they essentially stopped working on next generation powertrains about a year ago when the automakers said, hey, listen, we're going to be investing primarily in electric vehicles going forward. So when you look at the fuel economy improvements that have traditionally come out of these powertrain suppliers to support better fuel economy, to support the EPA regulations, that's going to get tougher going forward because you're basically going to be, unless these tier one suppliers start reinvesting in next generation ICE powertrains, you're not going to have as much improvements. And that's why the government, I believe, is going to have to back off uh, some of these, you know, very ambitious targets, because not only will the technology not allow you to get there in the time frame, but consumer demand won't. Yeah. And then you're going to have all your charging stations because we're going to we're going to make 400 every day, like you said. And then um, you better hope people have the EVs to use them, too. And that you better hope not everyone's EV is a Tesla because nobody's buying in any of the other ones at that point. You better hope that the recent UAW wage gains don't make the transition impossible from a, you know, without the government stepping in and doing it again uh, and, and bailing out the entire industry. Well, on the cost side, to your point, if you look at just, let's use a snapshot of today. So most people buying EVs today are, are wealthy consumers. If you look at the third quarter, about 25% of luxury car sales were EVs. On non-luxury cars, it was about 3%. So, you know, clearly right now, the average cost of an EV, and I know we're talking averages, is about 25% higher 
than an ICE vehicle. And that's down 20% since the beginning of the year and all the price cuts that's happened. So if you kind of boil that down to, you know, the family that's sitting across the kitchen table and wondering, you know, how they're, what they're going to buy, if you assume an 8% interest rate, more or less, that difference of a, of a cost in an ICE vehicle, average ICE vehicle versus an EV, it's about $275 a month. The challenge for the industry is over time, how do they make, how do they equalize that? So it takes the cost issue off the table. But then you get to the infrastructure issue and the charging infrastructure. Yeah. So most consumers are going to say, hey, listen, when you solve the cost issue and when you solve the charging infrastructure issue, <laughs> then I'll consider it. Right. And I think that's why it's going to take longer than expected. Warning. That was very random and you could argue misplaced, but it was intentional. The guy that ran Ford Motor Company, when all these interventions by the government were Ah, so popular and, and regular. I mean, if you listen for seven minutes, Josh, you know what he said? I mean, the guy that ran Ford Motor Company, you know what he said? Nothing we're doing makes any sense. I mean, I, you know, I'm trying my damnedest to defend it, but nothing we're doing makes any sense, except this is the way the government said they want the auto industry to go. Now, I mean, the, the scary part of that to me is we have given up on the engineering science that will improve um, the the Fuel efficiency, efficiency. Yep. of a internal combustion engine. Miles per gallon. I mean, he basically yeah. said, we've given our engineering team different marching orders. Crazy. I We're mean, not concentrating on, I mean, Rev's internal combustion engine gets 20 miles a gallon. He can forget 25 because they're not investing. I mean, it, they're just going another way. The government said that electric is the future. They incentivized and mandated of these auto manufacturers. And I'm telling you guys, something is... Something as important as personal mobility. You can't play games with it. You just can't. But that's what we decided to do. And and now he's saying, well, I mean, you're right, Joe. We probably did say the the evolution was going to be quicker than than it turns out likely to be, but but we're still going to end up driving electric vehicles. Because that's what I mean that that's guys, that is profoundly socialist. I mean that that is unbelievably, unbelievably different than the history of the private sector in our, in our American economy. But it is what it is. And, he, and and you could hear the guy from Ford not want to offend the federal government because they made enormous investments, partnerships with the government. I mean, I think he said it's part of the $7.5 billion incentive to build charging stations. Red tape got in the way. <laughs> so the government is the in government charge of building charging stations, <laughs> and, but and the government the red way. tape is the reason we can't get as many built, but don't you worry. And there you go. That's the government. But but don't you worry. We'll figure out a way to build 450 a day at some point in time. <laughs> yeah, I don't I mean, think so. Forget that we're building about 60 a day. I mean, we'll, we'll figure out a way to build 450 a day sooner. Um, it's just I wanted you to hear how absurd, and that's energy. And, and as we conclude 2023, I've said over and over and over and over again, we're going to screw up a lot of things, and it will be okay. I mean, we may do this or do that or do some. Republicans make a mistake. Democrats make a mistake. Our debt and energy is serious biz. And we're monkeying around with the energy part of our economy in ways that make no sense at all. I mean, it's not a flight simulator, but we're acting as if it is. And the guy that runs forward who made these deals with the government basically is saying, I can't defend any of this. None of this makes any sense. But they gave us a lot of money. We signed on up. We signed up with EPA. 
they probably gave them, I mean, I would imagine Ford asked for some influence at EPA. They probably asked for some influence at transportation. There may be a former board member at Ford who's now on the board at, um, or one of the regu- chief regulators with EPA. I mean, that, that's the cozy relationship that I talk a lot about. But, um, but I just wanted you to hear kind of, kind of why I believe energy is so important. And Joe Kernan, I mean, you heard Kern- Kernan say, because he, he, he automatically said, well, you know, oil is a depleting resource. Is it? And did you hear what Joe said? And there's a reason he said it, guys. I mean, we're playing chess for a second. Kernan said, I may catch some flack for this. He's talking about NBC Parent. I mean, he's talking about NBC. NBC's on board with this. NBC can't have contrarian opinions. So when Kernan says, I'll probably catch some flack for this, somebody probably at NBC wrote him an email, said, hey, Joe, we're on the team. Yeah, yeah, because he talked positively about, you know, the contributions well, of I mean, fossil fuel yeah, and what said, it makes possible says, man, I mean, it's just world. hard for me to believe that we're going to live the same kind of lives <laughs> <laughs> and, nope. and if we continue to try and convince ourselves that decarbonizing the economy is the, it's not, it's absurd. It's silly. It's not achievable, but if, the government says we must. And some people do because crazy. the government says we must. It's crazy. He would catch flack for saying fossil fuel has done some good things. It's crazy. He'd say that publicly back in a few. We're jumping around a good bit this morning, Friday before Christmas. Want to do wish everyone out there a Merry Christmas. Uh, we'll be out of here next week. There'll be reruns, right, Josh? The best we could do of uh, Wake Up Carolina. We have with us this morning, we jumped around a lot this morning, but but I guess the story of the week is what the Colorado State Supreme Court decided to do in regards to removing Donald Trump from the ballot. There's a stay here until January 4. We believe that's to give the Supreme Court uh, a chance to consider whether or not um, that ruling stands. California is now making a lot of noise believing that it's time to explore every legal option to remove Trump from the, the 2024 ballot in the state of California. Political strategist, strategist Connor Vasile is with us. Connor, good morning. How are you? Good morning. Thank you, sir. So is, is California, as they consider whether or not to do what Colorado did, what are they taking into account? Uh, well, as we all know, this is uh, completely unprecedented. Uh, they're just trying to look at a way out to see, um, you know, how to keep Trump off the ballot in any way, shape, or form possible. Uh, what we're seeing from the lieutenant governor, she stated, uh, as you just uh, mentioned, uh, they're trying to explore every legal option. And she elaborated uh, when she was speaking with her secretary of state uh, that she wants to uh, basically honor the rule of law in our country and to protect our fundamental pillars of democracy, I think this is a very interesting way of going about that. Uh, so I don't know exactly what their justification is, but we all know at the end of the day, this is completely unconstitutional. It will not pass muster, and it will be interesting to see how um, things develop in the coming weeks. Connor, what do we make of – I mean, I'm with you there. I mean, to, to, to me, the, the, the convicting a man of a crime he's not been charged with and no due process, equal protection – I mean, there, there are a multitude of reasons to say Colorado made a bad call. We understand why they made the call as politics. But, but I, I want to go to this. Speaking of politics, you're a strategist. I've run for office. I've never in my life seen a guy that the likelihood of him winning increases every time, not most times, every time some sort of perceived negative news hits him. What, what do you make of that phenomenon? And what does it say about not – 
necessarily the candidate and campaign, but where the Republican electorate and the general public are uh, in general. Right. It's definitely the, uh, the quite the unique situation. Usually if uh, someone is embroiled in, in a scandal or two, you know, they drop in the poll numbers. Uh, but in this case, I think it's really reflective of a society which basically is just so done and sick and tired of the pretentiousness and the indifference that their so-called representatives are partaking in. And as we're seeing right now, we basically have a two-tier justice system where not only uh, are they trying to take away, well, obviously the Republican frontrunner uh, in the race, but uh, basically a group of people who do not even care to uh, honor the rule of law, as you said, the due process uh, that is afforded to us in the Constitution. And I think uh, his increase in popularity with every single either fifth scandal or problem or issue in the media is purely reflective of a populace that is just absolutely sick and tired of a political elite that just doesn't care about them. This is this is quite an interesting phenomenon, but if they keep doing this, uh, he's just going to get more popular over time, and hey, it's working for him. Well said. Connor, thank you for your time. Have a good day, good weekend, and Merry Christmas. Thank you, sir. Merry Christmas. Thank you. Um, I want to say this, because Jim brought up my political life yesterday, or the day before. I think a couple of days back, mm-hmm. Jim called in and said, you know, I was kind of an outsider. I was a rabble-rouser. I didn't conform. I didn't fit in. I didn't do some of these things you got to do to be um, in the club, so to speak. I do believe this. Um, I had someone text me two days ago. I was asking a question about New Hampshire, and the person is in the media, and the person covered my um, crap storm, and they said, it seems to me you got the itch. And I responded, I take a Benadryl. I mean, every time I get that itch, (laughs) I take a Benadryl. But I will say this. The intriguing part of my situation, it would be kind of sort of a badge of honor. I mean, it really, I mean, normally when you make a big mistake and you run off into the sunset and they cut you a deal and you got to go home and you don't get to play ball anymore any longer, uh, you make that mistake, you don't get to play again. It's almost like making that mistake now kind of validates you as being somebody they can't tell what to do somebody they can't control, somebody who may be a bit disruptive and, and chaotic. I guess the point I'm making, not, not me, per, well, I guess me personally in a, in a weird way, I think you bring that to the table with you, and it probably does help you. I think if, if somebody like me were to run and say, look, I mean, I did wrong. I mean, there's no doubt about it. I did wrong, and I owned it. I took responsibility. I didn't blame my consultant, didn't blame my secretary, didn't blame my finance man. I did it, and I'm responsible for it. But a lot of others did it, too. And they walked, and I didn't. And you got to ask yourself why they walked and why I didn't. I can tell you why they walked, because they made a deal to keep their mouth shut and do what they're told. And I was willing to not keep my mouth shut and not do what I'm told. And I think that's a little yeah. like. Some voters say, I like that. Th- they they would love that. Yep. I mean, they, they would embrace that. Um, Feel we need more of that. Bingo. In government. Bingo. Hey, the guy made a mistake. He owned it. I mean, he paid a, a pretty significant price as a result of it. I'll say this. You ready? I mean, since we're being so humble. Henry McMaster will be the longest-serving governor South Carolina's ever had. I mean, he finished Nikki's term. He got elected and then reelected. So Henry's going to have 10 years in the governor's mansion. If I don't get in trouble, he doesn't serve a day. Right. If, I, if I don't get in trouble, 
Henry, Henry McMaster never becomes the governor of South Carolina. I mean, I'm good where I am, and, I, and I've said that. I mean, when I got a little bit sappy on my birthday, all you kind folks saying, you know, very pleasant, decent things. You meant some of it. Some of it you probably didn't, but hey, we're all we're all kinder and gentler come Christmas time. But but I just I've often thought of that. You make a big mistake, you resign, you, you're embarrassed, you don't ever get to play again, except now. And I think some mistakes probably help you more than not making the not ever having made the mistake. And I think the narrative would be, hey, it was my money. They made me a deal and I could have taken the deal. But but I don't want to be I don't want to be true to them. I want to be true to myself. I want to I don't want to be their guy. I want to be my guy. There there you go. I, I don't I don't want to I don't want to do what they tell me I gotta do. I want to do what I think I need to do on behalf of the people of South Carolina. I got the campaign speech down pat. You ready? Eight four three six six one oh nine three like seven. Yeah, give me that Benadryl. <laughs> <laughs> Calm that itch yeah, down. Yeah, let, let's go to the phone. Someone's there. We need you here on the radio. Yeah, man. You're right. You're uh, right. You're right. Fearless my, leader, right, Josh? That's right. Fearless. <laughs> Stand by. Our fearless leader is about <laughs> to speak. Let's go to the phone. Mike in Darlington. Good morning, Mike. Yeah. Good morning. It's a genuinely entertaining conversation. But uh, back to the Democrat Party. I think uh, they're they're under a lot. You apply a lot of energy, a lot of heat to them. They start melting down into their constituent uh, uh, elements. And uh, one of the, one of the things in their playbook was always lynching and uh, limited who could run the poll tax and all that sort of thing. So they, I I think they're getting right back to to that uh, basic thing. I mean. Not everybody they lynched was black. They lynched brown people, white people, but most all of them were Republicans, or they thought they were Republicans. I, I think that's the thing you forget about the Democrat uh, era of lynching, is they tended to lynch Republicans first, no matter what the color. And that, and uh, I think they're getting right dangerous by disobeying the uh, letter of the law and not and uh, bending the law out of all proportion to what it is, but uh, I also like those <laughs> what you played back that uh, Ford executive CEO. That was uh, in, absolutely uh, incredible. It sounded like he had a dose of common sense there. That it took more than uh, changing the figures on a piece of paper to get uh, joules and kilowatt hours into. Uh, uh, applied to the road to move people down the road to working back and uh, i don't know what in the world they're thinking but uh this could be a horrible disaster if they keep uh keep on with this um and, and no one says anything about the environmental impact of running those big uh cargo carriers and tankers all the way around the horn of africa why is there no uh, protest about that? I'm sure that's causing a lot more damage to the environment. If, if, if in fact, they do cause damage environment, I think that's more than uh, all, all of California emits in a year, what they're going to use to run those ships around the Horn of Af Africa instead of through the Suez Canal. Thank you, Mike. Uh, well, I, mean, I, I think yep. we've proven over the long run that the American way, the American government, the American experiment, I mean, we can sustain and survive a lot of bad calls. I mean, we've had dumb people doing dumb things for a long time. I mean, it's not some newfound 
phenomenon. We've had dumb people doing dumb things in powerful places. Now, now I would argue we've probably got more not-so-smart people in powerful places than we ever have. They're electable. They're, uh, you know what I mean, they're, um, they're marketable would be a better word here. The reason I have been very consistent in my proclaiming energy and debt different than all the others, I'll give an example. So let's say, I mean, you heard the Ford executives basically say, nothing we're doing makes any sense, but we're going to do it. I mean, that, that's the thumbnail. I mean, that's the takeaway from, from what he said. What is the cliff note of the seven-minute interview that Joe Kernan of CNBC had with the former CEO of Ford? It basically is none of this is working, but we're going to do it anyway. I mean, it's pie in the sky, but we're going to do it anyway because we took their money. We, we probably cut a deal. I mean, the truth be known, there's probably people that left Ford to go to work at EPA, left EPA that went to work at Ford. What I wanted to do was try and exhibit an example of how cozy I think those relationships are. I mean, I think transportation at EPA are always in conjunction with Ford and GM and some of the other major auto manufacturers. Um, the scary part of that, Rev, was when he said, look, all the engineers that were working on efficiency standards regarding internal combustion engines, we've told them to stop. I mean, we're not doing that any longer. They have basically given up on the internal combustion engine. I mean, at the macro. I mean, they, they, you know, still got service centers. I don't know if you saw this or not. Um, some, of the, uh, some of the Buick dealers, uh, some of the GM dealers are buying out some of the Buick dealers that refuse to electrify. I mean, in other words, you got a Buick dealer, and you're selling X number of cars, and your business is anywhere near what it used to be, and they want you to spend a million dollars to electrify your facility, and by that I mean sell and service electric vehicles, and you say, I'm not doing that. I mean, there's some buyout provision and some of these contracts that they have franchise agreements with with the dealer, but I just wanted you to hear what I perceived, and then the Rev gave it the green light. I mean, the Rev said, that is kind of interesting. I mean, when you think about Joe Kernan, who's an old hand at CNBC, and Joe challenged him a little bit. Now, Joe made known that he's not supposed to publicly challenge this agenda issue, this agenda item, we're all supposed to be on board with EVs. He said, I'll probably get in trouble for probably this. Probably catch some flack for yep. this, I think is what he said. Yep. Probably catch some flack for this, but but we've all lived pretty cool lives with hydrocarbons being the primary source of energy. And all of a sudden, some government agency, so some government edict or order says, out with that. I mean, it's been dependable, reliable, affordable. We're not doing that any longer. And then you got the Ford guy saying, repeating some narrative as if it's true. We don't know if it's true or not. The depleting of oil resources, you know, natural gas, how much oil, how much natural gas is left. We don't know how much oil is at Anwar. I mean, the government says we can't drill, but, but I think the scary part of that is that the executive for Ford basically says nothing is working. Nothing you told us, nothing we told you, nothing the government promised, nothing we Followed up on what the government's promises were. Nothing is working as we were told it was working, but we're still doing it. We're continuing to do it anyway. And that is the coziness that the government has with these huge international corporations and energy's different. And this is not just energy. This is personal mobility. I mean, if we don't have any power, let's say we have an ice storm or hurricane and we go without power four or five days. How do people go from point A to point B? How do you get to a grocery store if your car isn't charged? I mean, who's thinking about these things? I mean, the government's this central planner. 
And, and you know who benefits when central planners get involved? The planners. When central planning creates the model of which we all exist in, everybody pays a price and the planner reaps the benefit. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937 takes Mondays to do what, Josh? Make Fridays. There you go. We made a Friday. Last Friday of the year will be um will be will be in recorded fashion next week. We're not arrogant enough to say it's the best of, but rather the best we could do. You're stuck with it, right, Rev? <laughs> That's exactly right. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. <laughs> Here is Jameson in Myrtle Beach. Good morning. You're on. Good morning, gentlemen. I uh, just wanted to call in briefly and just uh, kind of not to blow smoke, but just to say thank you for all you guys do throughout the year. Um, you know, there's a reason my alarm is set for 5.50 every morning so that I can, um, you know, pour a cup of coffee and get up and listen to you guys start. And, uh, you know, all the ladies in my office give me a hard time because they know when I come in at 8, usually that I get control of the speaker from 8 to 10 until you guys finish, and then they get the control it with taylor swift and christmas music that kind of thing um but just uh the service uh you guys provide to us and being able to help even someone like myself young in their 20s out of college to be able to have these conversations at tailgates and christmas parties and be able to articulate in an educational non-threatening way to folks when they come up and say hey we know you're kind of involved in politics what do you think about this and not just put on you know my red maga hat which i like to do but um, <laughs> I, I just did want to say thank you uh, to you guys for everything you do. And uh, and I mean this genuinely. I tell a lot of my friends, uh, not to devalue my degree, but you can learn more from a four-hour radio show than you ever can from my finance degree from the Dollar Moore School of Business. Um, any employers out there, please don't listen to that um, in the future. But you guys really become a part of our lives every morning and uh, are just a blessing and wanted to just wish everyone a uh, – Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, and enjoy some time off. And I hope folks like me and Josh that are, you know, working and doing our best and trying to be productive members of society and carry on kind of the values that you guys talk about every day uh, give you a little hope. I know there's not a lot of hope, but maybe a little hope for our generation so we don't screw it up too bad. Um, but Merry Christmas to you guys. Enjoy some time off. And we don't have a bowl game to be uh, stressed about. So uh, we'll see you guys next year. <laughs> Thank you, Jameson. Very, very kind of you. Appreciate yep. you saying that. Very nice. Um, Thank you. And I do. I mean, people like that and Josh encourage me. I mean, they inspire me. They, they've got a good center. They've got a good kind of kind of a moral compass and a general direction. Obviously, of have what, good what taste in radio in. shows. Yeah, you know, but 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 and and well, I mean, yeah, for for, for mine and your sake, if if nothing else, um, I mean, what what he said is kind of interesting. I, I told you everything in my life goes back to. <laughs> It's normally a football analogy or a Springsteen song. There's a song that Bruce sings, and he says, I learned more from a three-minute record than I ever learned in school. I don't attempt to be educational, but but I do believe that together, callers, listeners, guests, hosts, producers, we all bring an element of humanism to the table. And it's experiences and it's events and it's things we believe in. And, and when we provide a forum here, and I'd like to believe that I've earned the respect of our audience. And, you know, when I form an opinion, it's not out of thin air. I mean, it's not just because I want to, I mean, that sounds like something fun to believe in. Let's go there for a little while. No, I mean, that ain't how I roll. Uh, I try to substantiate 
my my inklings or desires. I mean, I have this something inside of me that says, hey, I kind of feel this way about this. But if I'm going to try and speak loudly and proudly about it to an audience of however many, I got to have some underpinning. I mean, I got to have some uh, an intellectual understanding and some data to back up what I believe. And once I do that, I mean, I, I think I'm relentless. I mean, I think I'm, 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 you know, non-negotiable. I mean, I believe in this and, and, and Josh inspires me. And that recent Jameson inspires me to know that there are young people. Cause I'll tell you guys, when I was Josh's age, 20 bucks, a girl in a car. I mean, that's, that's all I was interested in. I mean, in all honesty, I mean, I'm being, I could have cared less what made this world go around. I knew what made my world go around and it wasn't much and it wasn't real complicated. So I applaud Josh. I applaud Jamison. I applaud all these young people that are going to be stuck with $33 trillion worth of baby boomer debt. (laughs) (laughs) But have fun with that, Josh. Have fun with that, Jamison. And I think, uh, I mean, imagine the arrogance of a boomer who says, you know how those young people are. You know, they'll screw this country up. Really? Look in the mirror, boomer. Myself included. Look in the mirror. And just imagine leaving your great-grandchildren with a debt they can't conceivably nor possibly pay back because you weren't willing to make some pretty serious choices and, and deal with the serious and severe consequences. I'm not saying it makes us bad people, but, but I do believe that, that the service we provide here is much better with you participating. I mean, there is no doubt about it. Our owners were here uh, the last couple of days, and they were – enthusiastic about the callers, the quality of callers and the intellect of the callers, the, the degree of informed the callers call in and express themselves and, and have these opinions. And I've often said this, I mean, I'll, I'll say it till they take me off the radio. This isn't my show. This is our show. I mean, I get the mic and I've got an unfair advantage with people like Jeff and Williams always get the last word, but I think this is one of the last places on earth that we can freely speak about what we believe, why we believe it, and let people do with it what they choose. I wish there were more of you. I mean, I know many of you who say, hey, man, I almost called in yesterday. I mean, I was at the gym yesterday. I was listening, I almost called. You know how you said that a year ago, two years ago, three years ago? You ain't almost called. Because <laughs> if you'd almost called for five years, sooner or later, you'd call in. I really wish we had about 50 or 60 more callers. Because I know you have a lot to offer, and I know you understand what you believe in, and you're willing to express that belief and stand on on that principle or, or ideology, and that makes all of us better if we continue to go down that road. And yes, Josh inspires me, and, and Jamison inspires me, and young people who have an interest in the world around them, and what is their obligation to that world around them? What is their responsibility to political discourse and debate and opinion giving and respect? We have for people who disagree uh, with us. I respect the Colorado Supreme Court. My respect is not based on, I think they took a tough stand, but I respect that they made a political decision. They don't like Trump. They're not sure they can beat Trump. So let's take him off the ballot. You, you know what? That respect leads me to do. I want to be competitive. And I want to figure out a way. I mean, I said it earlier. I should be ashamed to say this because it's not practical, responsible, or constitutional. I want to take Biden off the ballot somewhere. I mean, I want an eye for an eye. And if this liberal court's willing to do something as egregious as what they did, then then I think Josh is right. You know, let's return fire. I mean, let's not stand idly by and allow them to bully themselves um, all over. It's the only place we've got the upper hand, guys. 
I mean, we talk a lot about losing control of the media. There is no doubt that the media is an extension of the DNC. The media is a propaganda arm of leftist America. Academia has morphed into a almost monolith. Prestigious universities in particular. I mean, it doesn't, I'm talking about Carolina Clemson Coastal, Francis Marion. I mean, these universities, I think, serve a legitimate purpose and try to better educate the young people of a state, area, and region. In Clemson and South Carolina's case, it's the Carolinas and New Jersey. Um, <laughs> my daughter says every third student I bump into at Carolina comes from New Jersey. Um, but, but, but the courts are where we have an upper hand. For whatever reason, since 1980, we have been able to put, of the 341 state Supreme Court justices, about 60% were nominated and appointed by Republican governors. I mean, you'd love for them to be removed. I'd love all 341 of those state Supreme Court justices to be Vulcans and to not be influenced by politics or personal passions or, or ideology or philosophy or a belief in the Constitution, interpretation of the Constitution. But they aren't. I mean, Jefferson gave us warning. They're human beings. They have certain beliefs. They don't stop believing what they believe when they put that robe on. I know what they're called to do and how, how they're you know supposed to act upon, but you're asking them to be Vulcans. They aren't. And I just think returning the favor demonstrates to the modern-day leftist political movement that not only will Trump strike back, the party will strike back. Let's go to the phone. Bob in Florence. Good morning, Bob. Hey, good morning, guys. Um, sitting here, look, I, I remembered a, a factoid from earlier in the year. Um, I'm looking here now at, uh, back in January, Forbes magazine announces that Jim to put nearly $1 billion into the development of a new V8 gasoline engine. So I, I think this is just all BS. They, uh, the, 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 the automotive companies are just going along with the government cause, cause they're feeding at the trough. Um, they're taking what money they can get. But they're they're still investing in gasoline because they know what they know what the real deal is. They know that gasoline and petroleum runs this world right now, and there's nothing else to replace it. Um, electric electric vehicles are a great idea, uh, but we're just not technologically we're not there. We we can't uh, we can't capitalize on that right now. Joe, is it possible to get there? Is it possible and conceivable to generate enough power for our economy without burning uh, hydrocarbons? It, it, it is, Ken, but you, the, the, they're going to have to get over the nuclear thing because the, uh, the left is opposed to anything but solar cells and wind. They, they don't want hydro. They don't want nuclear. They don't want clean coal. They don't want clean petroleum. They don't want natural gas. Is and, it, and, uh, let me ask you this. Is it economically feasible to, to, to rid the entire power grid of the global economy from hydrocarbons? I don't think so. No. I, I think collapse the entire planet. Correct. <laughs> there's got there, there's got to be a hybrid. There, I mean, that's another layer. I mean, there's got to be a, I mean, a myriad and multitude of ways to generate the power the world needs and consumes. And there is no silver bullet. There is no magic wand. There is no, you know, special potion over here on, you know, behind door number two. And if we only can unlock that, I mean, this is not splitting the atom again. I mean, it's going to be complicated, and it's going to be a diversity of sources of energy to get us to a better place. 
Thank you, Bob. Appreciate that. 843-661-0937. I'm not, I'm not negative on EVs. I'm negative on the way we did it. I think it's absurd. I think it's lunacy. I think it's insanity. I think it's dumb to believe that by the year 2030, we were going to make internal combustion engines obsolete. And that's not me saying it. A stammering and stuttering old man who's now our president said that on a debate stage when Trump kind of challenged him. Oh, okay. This is big news in Philadelphia or Pennsylvania. Remember that? Yeah. This is big news in Pennsylvania. Remember it well. And he, and he doubled down because he didn't know anything other than to double down. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937. Our number. Somebody's on the phone. Let's go there. Daphne and Dylan. Good morning. Good morning. You got to wonder, guys, how stupid people can be when they think that all you got to do is build a charging station. They don't even think about the grid will be overloaded and there will be no electricity for your homes if the grid is overloaded. Uh, I had, look what Maine just did. I don't know whether you heard that or not. You know, the governor of Maine decided he was going to mandate that they go all green and do like California and say, we're not going to allow gasoline cars after such and such a date. Well, we had the storm over the weekend, and guess what? Maine was three-quarters out of electricity, and so he's moving the date forward uh, to mandate all the electric vehicles. You know, I asked back in night. In 2021, and what kills me is the GOP do not have the cojones, even in red states, to back the federal government down or not to be intimidated by the radical green movement. I asked you back in April of 21 what Act 62 was, because it was... Uh, collectively, the solar choice tariff as specifically required by Act 62 and agreed to uh, to be a settlement with certain green energy advocates. And I tried. I called the state house. I called my senator. I called your station. I talked with the three representatives, and nobody could tell me. So. Our government gave in to green advocates, certain green advocates, to put tariffs so that they could transfer some solar uh, uh, energy. So then I thought to myself, well, look what Texas did. They took the federal money and converted 25% of their energy to wind and solar, and they had Fizola where people actually died because they had no heat during Frizola. Same thing with, uh, in, with, uh, with the batteries. I called and asked about where the minerals were going to be coming from. Well, if you're going to have electric cars and you've got radicals that will not let them, even if we had enough lithium mines in America, uh, the radicals shut them down. So I asked where we're going to get it. Well, the only place to get it is from China. And guess what? China's not our friend. And we could be just sitting still with no way to travel. And I can't get over how 
the elites think they're going to be exempt from all that. Thank you. Thank you, Daphne. Appreciate that. You know, in the um, in that same space, I guess, or sector. Um, I mean, I've talked to Representative Lowe, who's been very involved in the announcement, you know, that we had here in Florence, in the PD region of South Carolina, that centers around EVs, battery production, and I mean, uh, you know, I don't think he'd mind me saying this, and I have no idea who's coming today. It's Friday before Christmas. I don't know if we'll have one, two, or three members of our delegation. Uh, we'll see here in about 15 minutes or so. But I've talked to Philip a lot lately about some of the uh, some of what I study and research and try to understand, and some of the things I say over the airwaves. And 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 Philip talks a lot to me about making sure we understand this project that'll be such an ploy. I mean, it's a big investment the state's making. It's a big partnership the state's entering into with a for-profit business. And, I mean, I'll let him speak for himself, but, I mean, there, there's no naivete about that. I mean, there's no being gullible and just following the company line. Uh, I, I don't think he'd mind me. Philip has really followed up to try and better understand um, what the projections are, what the prognosis is. Is some of this negativity out there going to affect this project? And and I think I mean I don't want to I don't want to steal his thunder. I'll let him answer the question as he sees fit. But I want you to know that that he and I have discussed some of the macro issues that appear to be more prominent now than we were told they'd be. Do they specifically affect or impact this project? And and I'd rather him explain that. He'll do a better job of that. And he's talked to some of the people at Commerce and uh, with the battery manufacturing business about, you know, uh, we were told something three or four years ago when Biden ran and won that, you know, the EV was the way to go and there was no hiccups to be had and no problem, nothing to see here. I mean, you know, we'll evolve from the internal combustion engine to the EV and nobody will know it. I mean, we'll just wake up one day and magically everybody will have a an electric car oh, yeah. and everybody will have a, a charging station and we won't burn any more hydrocarbons and Greta Thornburg will have gotten gotten her wish and she'll live long and prosperous and great well i mean she's the kid that's the expert oh, right i know yeah um because i think she cried and got real emotional on tv um oh, yeah she but, scolded she yeah, scolded world sco- leaders scolded you yeah. know scolded engineers yeah scolded um you know people who know more about the weather and climate and the interaction government and business has with the uh, anyway it, it's silly it's nonsense but but philip and i began a conversation about a year ago because, I, I mean, I may have called him and I said, hey, man, I'm concerned about this project and, and how some of this, because I read these things and I study these things and I try to understand these things. And what we were told is not going to come to fruition. I mean, it's not going to happen the way we were told. Let's get our heads together and better understand specifically, specifically what's happening with this project, long-term, short-term job creation, you know, investment made by the county, investment made by the state, the number of jobs that will be created, the economic impact that will will have. Um, I mean, I'm not negative toward that. I mean, you know, I want I want a big employer. I want good jobs. I want quality benefits. I want a better way of life for the people who live in the good old PD. But but I don't want to sell them something that is just fundamentally untrue. And um and I'll let uh, if if Philip comes today, I'll let him better answer um that side of the equation. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937. The clout of this show continues to amaze me. I mean, it really does. There, 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 once upon a time, there was meet the press and this week with George Stephanopoulos, but now it's wake up. Right, Josh? 
I mean, don't, don't you right. feel high and mighty when you walk in the door? And, Hell the, yeah. and, and these uh, these elected representatives come in with all the answers to all the questions. <laughs> Senator Mike Rickenbaugh, Representative Philip Lowe are with us. Before we go down the road of, um, of politics and whatever we're talking about, Merry Christmas um, to both of you. And I mean that sincerely. I appreciate what you guys have added to our feeble attempted radio at Radio Brilliance here. Philip, I'll start with you if you don't mind. Um, you and I have talked for about a year. When the negative news about EV started, and, and we knew that one of the big economic development, uh, the most recent economic development addition was going to center around, around EVs. And you told me that you kind of went to work to better understand, does the negativity of EVs, or it's not negativity, it's a realization that maybe this doesn't happen as fast as the government led us to believe. The, the project that you guys were so instrumental is, is in the EV space. So you and I, and, and Mike and I, for, for the last year, have kind of debated, where are we in, in, in some of the positive and negative news? And, and I'll let you guys share as much as you'd like to share about, about what your opinions are regarding the recent announcement that would include, what, north of 2,000 jobs, we think, eventually, as a result of. Well, thank you for bringing that up. I think it, it's a hot topic right now, so to speak. And, and, you know, everybody would like solar to work, right? What we don't want is to subsidize it to make it work. And that's kind of, you know, what conservatives believe. And that's what I believe. We are transitioning somewhat forcibly by government to, to EV-type type cars. And Florence has had a, a, a large play, basically with BMW. And we're poised to be able to take uh, really all of their battery needs uh, for, for these cars and, and have them produced right here in Florence. And I think we're at 1,600 jobs now and uh, $1.6 in investment that's coming with the newest one. And, and you know, if this, if this battery world continues to take off and we get charging stations and all those things and it becomes more uh, affordable, it's a great thing. We, we'd rather not burn something if we can harness uh, – maybe solar power or anything if we can if we can avoid any pollution at all and and get through of our our days and our transportation needs and all then we're all pulling for that but it's a big thing for florence and it's a lot of jobs and there's even the potential of of more jobs following that if we do a good job with phase one and two you know there's this world is changing, uh, unfortunately. And, and Phil, this sitting, and Mike, this is not a, a build it and they will come. I mean, this company has a proven track record. <clears throat> BMW has expressed their need. I mean, they, they projected what their numbers are. So these aren't pie-in-the-sky government-induced. I mean, th this is a legitimate company that, that I would argue impacted the South Carolina economy more than any company ever has. And I'm not trying to be pro or con. I mean, I have real concerns about what the federal government has done with the big three auto manufacturers. And Mike, you and I'll talk about that. But but you've led me to believe that these are these are real numbers that BMW says they need to increase the percentage of autos they sell that are EVs. Yeah, they had a seven percent increase in, in their EV sales last year. So and that's naturally driven. I mean, that's that's just worldwide stuff that, that it's called capitalism. Yeah. So whatever we can feed into that, that's great. You know, I don't know. There's going to be winners and losers in the EV world. And, and the, the Scout thing that we did, we, we helped subsidize the start of that with a lot of 
improvements, uh, on-site improvements and all for that. It, those things are meaningful investments, uh, but ultimately, you know, the consumer is going to decide how fast this occurs. Mike, you're in the auto industry. I mean, you have a lot of different hats you wear in regards to this. It's not a question, but, but your commentary on all these moving parts. Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting time because I do a little bit of reading on this. And when we look back at the, the transition from horse and buggy to internal combustion vehicles, uh, and there, I, I read, I wasn't, obviously wasn't around, but I read the number of reports from folks who said, oh, look at that fad. It'll never take off. Uh, look at the devil's mobile, mobile over there. And it's, you know, it's, what's, what's this world coming to? I'm going to go get on my, my trusty steed. But free markets and limited government and the will of the people allow people to say, I can get from point A to point B faster than I can do it in a vehicle than I can do it on a horse. I don't have to feed them as often. I, I got to put gas in them, but they don't throw a shoe. I mean, all the reasons. Um, so there were the naysayers who said that the vehicle wouldn't take the place of the horse, but the markets determined that it was a better option and consumer demand drove it. The same should apply toward electric vehicles, in my opinion. The government shouldn't force it. Manufacturers shouldn't force it. If markets and consumers want an electric vehicles, let them choose electric vehicles. But the demand isn't there right now. I've got no concerns on BMW and, and the, the Ford or the, the Envision AESC plant. Those $1.6 billion of investment and 1,600 jobs paying 70 plus thousand dollars a year will be generationally changing for Florence. But the key to remember is that BMWs aren't used in the fields. They're not hauling, you know, trucks. They're not going to the boat landing to put your, your boat in. They're not a work vehicle. In this market, BMW works hard to get 3% market share. 3%. The majority of the parking lots in Florence County and the PD are filled with Ford trucks, Chevy trucks, GMC, and some crossover vehicles and that. People work. They go to, you know, they... I'm not downing the BMW customer, but it's a very different consumer. More fluent. More fluent, and they like the technology. They like the EV. They like the charging stations. And they can afford it. That's right. And they're not out in the field in Johnsonville or Pamplico trying to find a charging station. That's that's kind of an interesting take. And I do believe, Philip, that some of what we talked about was the EV at the beginning is going to be more expensive. It's going to be less affordable. The affluent will tend to buy those, and BMW being a car Mike says 3%. I would argue 90% of that 3% are more fluent than the average American. It would stand to reason that BMW would be a little ahead of the curve when it comes to, I don't want to say normalizing the EV, but but mass producing the EV. Yeah, and, and I want to dispel a rumor. It's not a Chinese market. This this is owned by the Japanese. Okay, There may be some Chinese investment in that. Hell, I, I've got some investments, you know, in, in mutual stocks, you know, just a, a random, I don't go through and look at every one of them, whatever is in that mix. But anyway, it's a, it's a Japanese company. Uh, and subsidies, you got to get into the discussion of subsidies. Where is an off-ramp off the interstate a subsidy? Uh, Bucky's got one, right? Okay, and, and I think they're turning about a million dollars a day out Every there. day. Every day. Every day. And, and so was that ramp probably worth it? Yeah. And we got, what, 100 people out there employed or more? There might be 100 in the store at one time sometimes. <laughs> but if you put money in the ground on, on in your infrastructure, 
When you come in and say, I've got a bunch of jobs or I've got a bunch of houses I want to put here, the DOT looks at you and says, hey, you're going to crowd the streets. What are you going to do about that? Then they tell you what you're going to do about that. You, you're going to have to improve intersections, widen roads, turn in lanes, traffic lights, do all those improvements. So sometimes these subsidies are just merely improving the infrastructure in and around that we all enjoy too, but we're all collectively subsidizing that through our taxes. So, And, and Mike, to use a car analogy, I've always felt that the private sector is the engine that drives the economy. But the government does have a responsibility to put the right oil in, I mean, to, to create soil conditions that allow for economic development and, and capitalism to thrive and prosper. Yeah, and I think that's, that's a good indication for the government to, to get a sense of what consumers want. If the consumers want to go from an a internal combustion gas engine and they, they like diesel, then the demand will be shown in when they're coming to our dealerships and what they're buying. If the hybrid engine is the engine consumers want to go to, where it's going to be a, a blend of a hybrid electricity or a hybrid motor and then internal combustion, uh, that's where a lot of manufacturers see the sweet spot. So you got folks who are, whether they're environmentally conscious, whether they want to truly try to reduce uh, carbon emissions, they have that hybrid type of a, of a vehicle, but you don't need the charging stations to the same degree as you would the full EVs. If we let the, the consumer demand drive the decisions and drive what the manufacturers make, it's going to balance out. You know, I went to get a cup of coffee this morning and I paid $5 for it. Uh, it's my, my weekly treat right there. But if it was $10, I wouldn't buy it. The balance of an equation in a transaction is based upon both sides benefiting. If consumers aren't benefiting from the vehicles they're trying uh, to purchase, they won't buy them. And Philip, I don't believe it's hypocritical to be skeptical of the national movement in the macro you know, Biden stands on a debate stage and says we're going to abolish internal combustion engines by the year 2030. You don't believe that. Mike doesn't believe that. I don't believe that. But I don't think I'm being hypocritical because you've convinced me and I'm and Mike and Jay and some others have convinced me that this project, this particular job-creating opportunity is not about the macro, but rather a an intimate relationship this company has with an auto manufacturer that is very confident in the number of auto, of electric vehicles they will eventually sell. Is that a fair description? Yeah, first of all, I don't believe a word Biden said, so let's, let's start there. The few and, words we can understand. And, <laughs> and I don't like the subsidy discussion. I don't like government forcing me. I don't want to be told as a consumer what I must drive and what I, what, that they're going to take away all my gas engines by 3032 or 2032. Forget that. That's not the government I want. But – we we have to sometimes in in the early part of of moving towards a certain direction have some help or some guidance. I don't think what Biden's doing is helping or guiding. I think he's forcing. So we've got to catch up with that. Just simply, it just what the consumers want and and provide that. But we've got something special coming to Florence that is going to help really change us. We're going to have. I bet we end up with, with 2,000 or more jobs before you know it over this because there'll be things supplying this EV plant. Walk me through the timeline. I mean, both both of you, I mean, we're doing what now? What comes next? When will there be 2,000 people or 1,000 people? Or when will we begin? When will the first battery be built? I mean, I'm not asking you to write it in blood, but, but the two of you, what sort of timeline can we expect for that uh, economic activity to take place? Either of you guys. Well, the first phase, you might have go, go, go. Yeah, the first phase of, of phase one of the pro, of the project is 810 
million dollars of investment, and that was the six was it six hundred jobs in phase one. And those six hundred jobs, we've got an HR director. They the company has an HR director here in Florence who is currently going through the hiring process, but it's not just simply hiring people ready to go. It's the, the training mechanism to get them in, uh, the, the flow, the, the company, or I should say the entity that the state has is called, I believe it's ready SC. That's the workforce development aspect of it. That is going to do the, the training. So when the comp plan opens, which I believe is supposed to be with the end of next year, the employees will be ready to go. So that's, that's the most recent status I've heard on phase one. That's another car analogy. That's where the rubber hits the road. Yeah, if you, if you ride back in that, you can see what's going on now. And they've done all the land clearing, and, and they're moving dirt, and they're getting ready, putting pads up now so that the buildings can be built on those. So we'll, they'll be going vertical this next year, uh, and you know, they'll, it'll take about a year to build the plant out. Hopefully um, by next year, not this coming, but I guess 26, then they'll have, they'll have jobs ready. They'll be starting to do what they do, building okay. build batteries. Good deal. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes. 843-661-0937. I thought I knew what it was like for somebody to get picked on in politics. I mean, when you're when you're in the middle of a political crap storm, you feel very sorry for yourself if you aren't careful. I mean, you really can. Um, I mean, I made mistakes. I owned my mistakes. I moved on. But Donald Trump puts anything anybody's ever gone through to shame. I've never seen as many organized forces trying to take a guy out. I mean, it's like a bounty. I mean, it's like, remember Buddy Ryan back in the day put a bounty on Lawrence Taylor's head? I mean, I, there's a lot of people I'd put a bounty on his head. Lawrence Taylor ain't one. I mean, you, you're going to lose that about every single time. But I want to get, I mean, you two guys are elected officials. And you know the um, you know the territory and terrain. You know how it's, um, it's easy to be, not be the most popular guy in the room. You make tough decisions. You live with the consequences. I'm making those decisions, but I never imagined, Mike, I'll start with you. I never imagined that a, a duly appointed state Supreme court would convict a man of a crime. He's not even been charged with and tell the Republican voters of one state in Colorado, you can't vote for that guy. You can vote for who we say you can, but you can't vote for that guy. That's not a question, but what is your commentary to that? Yeah, my commentary is is what a a miscarriage of justice and what a travesty. Uh, but I think it's going to be one that in the end plays out better uh, for Donald Trump and better for Republicans. I think even moderates who may not like Donald Trump look at this and say, "Wait a second, I'm all for you being the the, the radical left going at him. You know, you, you go at him, we'll go at Biden." But for you to try to tell us we can't vote for this person, that you want to take him off the ballot, um, as you would say, Ken, that's a, that's a bridge too far. Like, it's not okay to disenfranchise me, to take my right to vote for a person uh, just because you are so scared that they'll win. I think it's going to boomerang, and it's going to be better for Republicans. I also think, and not to over-spiritualize it, it's another example of why we need to pray. Battles are won spiritually even before they're one on the earth, they're in the flesh sometimes. So while we need to advocate, we need to talk, we need to give, we need to, you know, we need to mobilize. We being the, the conservative citizens of, of University of, not, of South Carolina and of the United States, uh, we need to work, but we also need to pray for the leadership. We need to pray for better Supreme Court 
better U.S. Congress, better state legislatures, every level, because ultimately, if we do believe God is in control, and while life isn't perfect, the world isn't perfect, if we pray, if we fast, if we seek God's counsel, and then we work. I, I go back to Nehemiah, greatest example. Pray and fast, but then go get on the wall with your hoe in one hand to work and your sword in the other to fight and do it in conjunction with God's plan. Philip? Well, I'm sure glad Mike took the high road because I'm taking the low. I'm going to tell you, I'm mad as hell, and I ain't going to take it anymore. And that's how I think most people feel right now. Uh, it is absolutely ridiculous, the number of pop shots they've taken at him. And, you know, if you take a pop shot at the king and you miss, it's going to be hell to pay. And I'll tell you, Trump is going to get those boys, and they will do anything to stop him now because they know they've shot at the king, and they're exposed. They know Trump knows who shot at him. He knows where those bullets came from. And he, and, and that's, of course, that's figurative speaking, but we shouldn't put up with it. We should send him money. We should support him. We should get in the gutter with him. We should get wherever we need. We get in the jail cell with him and vote for him and get him out because that swamp is so filthy that someone's got to drain it and someone's got to sweep out the sludge with it. Let, let me ask you this, and I want to get both of your takes on this because I've argued, and my job is not the same as yours. I mean, you guys pass legislation. You sit on committees. I mean, you got diligence. You got you got you got you got to stick to it and work things through the machine. I don't. I mean, I've got full autonomy, full full clearance. I mean, I'm you know I can make it up as I go if I choose to. The struggle I have, guys, and Mike, I'll go back to you. The struggle I have is I've tried to base my political beliefs on the Constitution. Is it constitutional or not? At the end of the day, the adherence. Is something I want to be able to look in the mirror and say, okay, I mean, you, you didn't get your way, but at least you took the high road and adhere to the Constitution. Is it time to consider a loosey-goosey interpretation of the Constitution? I'll give you a hypothetical, Mike. The lieutenant governor of Texas is basically saying, why don't we interpret the Constitution as they did and take Biden off the ballot in Texas? I mean, that's, that's fighting fire with fire, as Philip says. Is that a quandary that, constitutional adhering conservatives find themselves in yeah my my challenge and my concern ken with uh fighting fire with fire by a loosey-goosey interpretation of the constitution is that it can work both ways uh, i'm a constitutionalist and in particular i'm very pro second amendment which means we have a right to bear arms full stop period you can't take my guns away and there are those on the left that have said well the Constitution said a right to bear arms, but that was back when it was muskets. Now that you got a, a Glock 17 that'll hold 19 rounds in it, that's not what they meant. So let's reinterpret it that if you want to carry a, a rifle that's over such a distance that's a bold action and can carry one bullet at a time, then we'll allow it. Nah, you're not taking my Glock. You're not taking my FNN. You're not taking any of my guns away just because you determine you're going to reinterpret the Constitution. So I think we need to be really careful of, of re misinterpreting the Constitution to fit our needs because it can work against us. So, Philip, do we trust the U.S. Supreme Court to restore the constitutionality or not of what they did in Colorado, what they're trying to do in California, what they tried to do in Michigan and Minnesota? Well, only because we have a conservative advantage. If if you're relying on a bunch of Democrats, to you you can see what Colorado just did. So, yeah. I mean, it depends when you have the advantage. You, you take the immigration problem. Could you imagine living on on the edge of, of our border there and have eight or 10,000 people trying to storm the gates, a 1,000 or two walking through 
a day and just appearing in your hometown and having to figure out how you deal with it, knowing full well the federal government isn't going to solve your problems. They have to get creative. They have to find a way. They, they've got to do something that violates their law, write laws that makes it so that that state's laws are violated and enforce your own laws and let the rest of it, let, let the courts, you know, in the, in the U.S. Supreme Court and all deal with it. We've got an advantage in the Supreme Court if it gets to that point now. So you've got to take care of that kind of a problem. It's not even gutter fighting. It's just you got to figure out how to do it if you got to write a new law to do it. I, I read something yesterday. Let's stay there because I want to ask you guys. Um, immigration is a national issue. I mean, if you live in Eagle Pass, Texas, it's a big deal. If you live in Bangkok, Maine, probably not as concerned with what's happening. Is there reason to be concerned? I mean, do you guys get updates? Do we know? I mean, I looked back yesterday at Border Patrol. 35,000 people with criminal records were caught coming across our border in 2023. Caught. We don't catch them all. You know that. I know that. We probably catch less than 25% of criminals coming into the country. 13 were caught in October alone that are on the terrorist watch list. As a state elected official, what is your, I mean, obviously you don't run border security. You don't run immigration policy, but, but is it something that the South Carolina general assembly need to be concerned about and actions taken? Here's why I believe we absolutely need to be concerned and we need to be prepared to defend our state with a very liberal governor in California and a very liberal governor in Arizona who have now hypothesized, well, if we're going to allow conservative Republican governors to send migrants to liberal states, what if we were to do the same thing? So what's to stop Gavin Newsom or that, that governor from Arizona to send in bus loads and plane loads of illegals into South Carolina? And these aren't frail little ladies who are, have a, one child on the breast and another child on her hand. Um, these are people on a terrorist watch list. These can be people that plan to do our country harm. They, they could be bringing fentanyl. They've been shown to be bringing fentanyl. If we don't prepare ourselves to defend our state, they will continue to go past Texas, past California, past Arizona, and look for other places to land. And with the Census Bureau showing that South Carolina, and along with Florida, is the fastest growing state in 2023, we're a pretty fertile ground for people to come to. What would stop those illegals from trying to come into South Carolina? So, Philip, should we make that a priority as you guys go back to Columbia next month? I think there's so many people coming across. You'd be a fool not to think some of them are not going to end up here. So, yeah, I think we've got to address it. We had laws, but they're really not enforced. They're really not strong enough to to either round somebody up. You think you know not here legal? We're not doing any of that. You know, maybe. We're looking at employers and putting a little bit of onus on them to supposedly check it out. But they've got systems that go out there and create, you know, false addresses, false people, false uh, identification. We don't really know who we're hiring around here, but there's a lot of people that don't speak our language. You know that for sure. Well said. Good, Mike. Let's take a break. We'll come back. I'll let Mike finish his, um, finish his thoughts. Back in a few. 843-661-0937 is our number. You guys, are, go ahead, Mike. I'm sorry, you want to finish your thoughts. You had some thoughts before the, the last one. Well, part. I just think as a state, we need to be very careful of, of what the future looks like. In the very short-term future, um, fentanyl in particular as a drug can kill so many people. And with the fentanyl crossing the border, you know, in our southern border, 
I think law enforcement needs very good direction, clear direction from the state legislature. And that's something I hope we do this year is let law enforcement know, here's the rules of engagement. You pull over somebody, um, they're undocumented. Do you just say, hey, you know, good luck, have a good day? Uh, do you expect the employer to be the one to say, ah, let's do a better job with it? Are they to take them to immigration? What's the plan going to be? Because it's, it's frustrating. I've been 24 years now a law enforcement officer. And when you're out on the road and you pull somebody over by jurisdiction, there's not clarity as to what the next step should be when you pull over someone who's undocumented. Well, Phil, let's go down this road a second. We got about six or eight minutes here. Um, America first is the dominant political, I don't want to call it an idea. It's a, it's a, it's a movement. I mean, it's a movement within the Republican party. I mean, I've looked at some of the data and, and Kahaley kind of confirms this. It looks to me that about two of every three Republicans identifies America first. You still got about one third establishment. Some is never Trump. Some is anti-Trump. Some is uh, kind of a status quo. Do you sense that in Columbia? I mean, is there that same feeling or, 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 I mean, I know you guys have a lot of different perspectives. I mean, every Republican in Columbia doesn't agree with one another, but, but is some of that America first made its way into the state house? Well, for sure. I mean, we've got a lot of people on Trump team from the state house that, that are, you know, have their hands up saying vote for Trump and I'm one. So uh, I'll tell you, there's plenty of, of American first movement and the Trump movement up there. It's uh, th there are places as we've talked before that, that are more liberal areas of Charleston area, places like that, that they have to be a little more careful. They, they don't have the people in their area that are, are hardcore or even considered conservatives. They're, Republican voters, maybe, and they barely won an election in a purple or a light or a dark blue area, whatever. They may have just snuck in. We had what about five surprises last time. We picked up votes from all over, but those could easily swing back. So those guys are always a little more nervous about getting out, you know, into something that is considered further right. You know, listen, that people, the people on the left hate Trump. It's not, I mean, I, I talk to people and they're losing their mind. And of course, we're losing our mind too back, but they hate him so bad, they'll do anything, and including corrupting Supreme Court judges in Colorado. Mike, the, the one thing that I've noticed in your campaigning and, and you know, hold office and you go out in your, in your area, uh, your district, the, you, you show up in Pamplico and Johnsonville a good bit. Um, that's different. And then, then those people are accustomed to having, we're talking about divisions in the party. I mean, I'm from Pamplico. It ain't two third Republican voters in, in rural America. I mean, it is over, you know that, I mean, it's overwhelmingly in support of Trump. What, what, what do you make of that? As you go through some of the rural areas of your district, I mean, it's, it's overwhelmingly supportive of the America first agenda and Trump in particular. Yeah, they are. And, what I find, and, and Sharice and I, again, we, you know, we always start in, in usually in the southern end in Johnsonville and work our way up through Pamplico. Then we go to Scranton and Coward and Effingham and Olean and Timmonsville. And, rural and, rural, and South, rural Carolina. South Carolina. And then even into Florence. And I think what is the common factor, Ken, is when you peel the onion back, the number one priority that most people have is I've got to protect my family. And they feel that the American first agenda is the agenda that's going to protect their family. And they can talk about economic policy and inflation and, and gas prices and infrastructure and all those things matter to them. But it's usually wrapped up in a package that says, I've got to protect my family economically, 
um, from terrorism, from drugs, from an, a mentality where they want to indoctrinate my kids in school. It's all, for the most part, circled up in the America First agenda equates to this will be the agenda that helps me protect my family. And the reason I spend so much time down there with Sharice is that those folks there, when they have that singular focus of protecting my family, there's not a lot of gray area in what is best for my family. I will do anything for my kids is generally the mentality of those people, and I love them. And, and Philip, a lot of your area is rural. I mean, you and Mike overlap a lot in the House and Senate district. Um, to me, it's more, well, it's, it's as much of what Mike said. A- added to that, I'd say, I'm not sure I had a fighting chance with the status quo. Seems like I've got more of a fighting chance with this guy in this movement. Do you sense that in rural South Carolina? I think they're getting more and more excited. And in my case, maybe more and more mad. Uh, you don't get to vote but once. At least the Republicans don't. But I think we're fired up right now. And if the vote were today, Biden would be a done. He'd be over. Okay, but you are the one that a year ago said Biden won't be the nominee. Oh, I, I do, you, do you stand by that? Be. He is not going to be their nominee. So, so as well, we well, head into 24, pl- play that out in your head. Well, I think it has to go to their convention. I think they let him take all the bullets. So they can pull somebody in at the convention that hadn't been looked at, his background hadn't been talked about. He's going to be the the guy who walks in, the new savior, the, the shiny new target. And I'll tell you, I don't know who it's going to be, but that's what's going to happen. They can't run that idiot Biden because he's going to lose. Mike, what do you say to that? I mean, is, is that a conspiracy theory, or or is it or is it more believable than that? Yeah, I, I see Biden um, tantamount to that mafioso boss that's old. That's, that is losing his faculties, that is no longer really capable of being at the top of the, the family, but he's dangerous because he knows things and he knows where the bodies are buried. I think the majority of the Democratic Party would rather have somebody else, but the, the adage that Phillips said earlier, you shoot for the king, you better kill him. I think some folks know that Biden knows things that could destroy lives and they're, they're leery of him. So if they know they can take him out, I think the left will. But like that mafia boss, every Don and every Capo that wants to be the, the top dog better be real careful. We've got a couple of minutes here. I'll get out of the way. One thing politicians like to do is tell the voters how much they love them and respect them and adore them. Christmas is a time that, um, th- that I know you guys like to tell people Merry Christmas and a thank you for all the support. So I'll get out of the way, something I hardly ever do. I'll get out of the way, Philip, <laughs> and let you kind of thank your voters and wish them a Merry Christmas. Well, first, it's an honor to serve with the two guys that that I'm with here with Mike and, and Jay. And I'll tell you, they're great folks to work with, and we don't see eye to eye on everything, but we're we're pretty good block vote here of, of taking care of our voters. Uh, honestly, I'm honored to serve these people. Um, I, I expect I will announce something in January about running again. Uh, I keep praying about it, talking with it. All my friends and all my family say, don't do it. But... I'm hard-headed, so I'll probably be back. And I thank everybody. I wish you a Merry Christmas, and I mean that from the Christ standpoint, not just wrapping presents. And uh, and I hope to see you first of the new year. I guess we'll we'll be on the air the first Friday. Yep. Be back to You're grinding. Right. Yep. Okay. Uh, Mike? Yeah, thank you all uh, here in the room. Josh, Ken, Dave, Philip, Jay's not here, but thank you for letting us be a part of this. And thank you for the listeners, uh, for the callers. It's a, an absolute honor to serve as your state senator. Uh, and I'd encourage folks to to join me in something that isn't easy for me to do. And that's 
not just pray for those we believe like us and those we agree with, but to pray for those who don't. And God knows that I have struggled with it. Uh, but Joe Biden is our president, and I got to pray for him. The, the word even says it. I got to pray for the state leaders who don't agree with me, and I don't agree with them. So it's easy to pray for those you love and support those you love, but the word says it. How about those that you don't? I put him in power. I don't know why he did. I'd love to one day ask God, Joe Biden, really? You <laughs> thought that was the best thing to allow? But for whatever there is reason in his sovereignty, he's president right now. So we got to defend our country and our state and that means praying for those on both sides of the aisle in any position of power while also praying, God, if it be your will, put better people there. And thank you for that, and Merry Christmas. Thank, same to both of you, and appreciate what you guys have contributed to our to our efforts. I think Rev says uh, that that as well. as I say it a lot more than he does, <laughs> and a lot more often than he does, but we really appreciate yep, absolutely. Uh, two today, but normally three of you guys coming in every week, giving us kind of updates and a take in perspective that most radio shows don't, don't, don't have. Thank you very much. Merry Christmas. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937. Last hour of 2023. Three. <laughs> <laughs> still, <laughs> still 2023. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. You're already jumping the gun to next year. Yeah, I'm ready to roll. Not quite. Ready to roll. I bet you are. You're ready you're, to go to a Woody Guthrie <laughs> musical festival. You music kinda, festival. You're kind of doing one You're in the, the room here. Yeah, yeah in the studio. Uh, Dina from Lada. Good morning, Dina. You're on the air. Hi. Um, I just wanted to touch base on something that you had asked a while back. You wanted to know, like, where this hatred towards Jews came from. I was nine years old in a brand-new school up in New Jersey, and the teacher asked what our background was, and I mentioned that my mother was Jewish, and half the kids wouldn't even talk to me after that. So this is something that's, like, said to them as a child. Um, but a couple other things. I'm not a Trump fan. When I was in New Jersey, I actually worked for Trump. Um, he actually paid the lowest wages for casino supervisors. So when he first started running for presidency, I was like, this is going to be bad. And then I never paid attention to the politics until after he was in there and all the crap started happening towards him. Um, and then I started following it. And anybody can see that what they're doing is absolutely ridiculous. Um, it is a witch hunt, um, totally. And then as for Bidenomics, I moved down here hoping for, like, an easier life after raising three kids by myself. Um, since then, I've gotten into rescue. And between driving around doing home insurance inspections, people aren't buying houses, so the inspections are down. The gas is ridiculous. And then feeding 21 animals, this Bidenomics is a joke. Um, I have never been so bad off money-wise until Joe Biden got into office. Um and then as far as H H Nikki Haley goes, when I first got here, she had the highest crime rate against women of all the states across the country. And then one last thing, Jeff gives me a headache. <laughs> Thank you. Appreciate that. <laughs> he hadn't given anybody a headache this week because yeah. we've not heard from Jeff um, this week. I thought he would be celebrating the fact that Biden was not going to be included. Uh, he will. But, but I mean, Trump, uh, Trump, I'm sorry, Trump won't be on the um, on the Colorado state ballot. The problem with Bidenomics, and it's not all a president's fault. I mean, I would never say that all inflation is a result of electing the wrong president. The reality is, and, and it goes back to the question I asked earlier this week that I think is the most interesting question anybody could consider. I don't have an answer. Josh doesn't have an answer. Rev doesn't have an answer. Let's play a hypothetical game for just a moment. Imagine if the government could not print money it doesn't have. 
what would the cost of goods be? What would the cost of services be? How much money would it take to live above the poverty line? How much would it take to be in the top 1%? I mean, imagine this. We're spending the, 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 the currency in circulation is about, and I'm not talking about empty money supply. I mean, that's another thing now. That's savings and checking accounts and whatnot. Um, I mean, th- there's about $2.5 trillion a year that kind of just goes through the economy. That That's kind of the, I mean, that's the Fed's number. I mean, there's two and a half trillion dollars out there, kind of, kind of make it a home, make it his way cash. What I call currency in circulation is what they refer to as as. Now we know the M2 money supply is about 22 or 3 trillion. That's a little less than that now, probably closer to 21 trillion. Uh, the, the gross domestic product of the American economy is somewhere, what, 25 trillion, 26 trillion, maybe a little more than that today. But what would the world look like today if the government could not spend a trillion dollars it doesn't have? If we extracted $1 trillion in liquidity, I mean, we agree the oldest economic philosophy is supply and demand. So if we supplied our economy with $1 trillion less liquidity, and, and we still had the same demand. Josh has got to have food. Rev's got to have gas. I got to sleep somewhere, right? I mean, the necessities. But, but if we extracted $1 trillion because we're not going to let the government spend money they don't have, what would the price of things be? What would a week at the beach be? What would a car be? What would a set of tires be? What would a meal at Redbone Alley be? What would a drive through hamburger at McDonald's be? I'd love to... I mean, I, I don't know how you get there. I mean, it's, it's the most hypothetical of all hypotheticals, and I have no idea how to get there from here. But I think it's the most interesting question we can ask ourselves because the private sector does not create inflation. I mean, it's gouging. When the private sector does that, it's gouging. Now, we could argue, and I think it's a fair argument, and this is probably where me and some of the liberals would, would have some common ground. I think when you give the economy an extra trillion dollars, there are people who are going to be greedy. And they're going to ask for more than their fair share um, during COVID. See, I think this is where the capitalists get themselves in trouble by believing that capitalism is a god, worshiping at the altar of capitalism instead of practicing economic theory that is capitalism. I think you're absurd to not believe that gouging exists and the free market is unfettered from human emotion. And, you know, this this business that makes this widget and, and, and the market says this widget's worth X. Well, I mean, if, if, if the government prints an extra trillion dollars, what does that business believe that widget's worth? It's worth X plus a percentage of that tree and whatever percentage they think they can get and stay in, in, in business. So, so I mean, the, the, and I love to ask these questions which nobody knows the answer to. But is, I mean, we've inflated the value of everything. Everything in our world is, is we're paying more for whatever we're buying than it's honestly worth. And the reason we're paying more is we're feeding our economy about a trillion dollars a year that we don't have. And I can hear someone say, oh, that's not true. Uh, the military industrial complex gets a lot of that money. Okay. I mean, let, let's say the military industrial complex didn't get that money. What would the CEO at Raytheon make? I mean, would he buy a 6,000 house in the Hamptons or a 3,000 square foot house in the Hamptons? I mean, if we, if we extracted a, a trillion dollars, of liquidity from our economy every year, somebody, everybody takes a haircut. I mean, the Social Security recipient, the Medicare recipient, the Medicaid recipient. 
I mean, if we take dollars out of Medicare and Medicaid, guess what gets smaller? The healthcare economy. I mean, if there aren't enough dollars to go around, do doctors make as much? The hospitals generate as much revenue? Does an MRI cost as much? No, it can't. It's the simplest and oldest economic theory in the world, supply and demand. And we're oversupplying our economy with liquidity, and a lot of people are figuring out a better way to get there more than their fair share. And that's why one of the uh, one of the dreams of mine is to create an economy. I mean, if there is um, if there is a way to influence from the hereafter, after I'm gone, I want to ask God. So God, I, I've had this crazy idea for a long time. What's that, Ken? You had a lot of crazy ideas. Um, one of my crazy ideas is that everybody gets exactly what they deserve. From an economy, the the host of a radio show is paid precisely and exactly what he contributes to the economy. The welder, the coal miner, the doctor, the pastor, the school teacher, everybody gets exactly. I mean, there, there's some supercomputer in the hereafter, and that supercomputer can can crunch Rev's not net worth but how much value Rev adds to the economy. What is, his, what is his contribution to the GDP of America? And out of that spits a paycheck or a direct deposit to Rev's account. And it's fair. I mean, it, it's, it's 100% accurate. Who makes the most money under that scenario? Josh, who makes the most money? I mean, if, we, if we've got a supercomputer in heaven and, and, I, and I get there and God says, okay, I'm, I'm going to give you six months uh, of being in charge of that super, the, 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 the on-off buttons behind that door, go turn it on, and automatically everything about the American economy will be absolutely, unequivocally fair. Everybody gets exactly what they deserve out of that economy, and you can leave it on six months. When I turn it on January 1, 2024, and I have to turn it off July 4, 2024, who's the highest paid contributor and recipient of our economy. You don't know the answer to that. Nobody no. knows the answer to that. Now, it'd be crazy to scratch your head and say, let me think on that a minute. You could think on that from here to eternity <laughs> and would never know the answer. That's what keeps me alive. That's what keeps me thinking. That's what keeps, that there is no answer to that. So if I ask myself a question and I, and on the front end, I say, there's no answer to that. I can pursue it forever. I mean, I can contemplate it. I can consider it. I can turn off the Woody Guthrie music festival for 10 minutes and start thinking about it because there is no answer to that. But what it is, you could probably say who wouldn't be making as much as they're making now. You could probably, you know, some of the people that probably well, it, take too much from the economy. What I could probably do, it, you're right, I could say, um, I don't, God, I don't know who gets the most. I don't know who's getting paid too little. But you see these 20 companies that lobby the federal government <laughs> to the tune of $100 billion. I'll bet they're getting too much. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure they are. You know, I don't. You know, is it military, industrial? Is it is it finance? Is it banking? Is it is it manufacturing? The Wall Street people that push paper across a desk and make millions and hundreds of millions. Well, I mean, doing you know, and and Bill Ackman. Remember when Ackman got real mad with Harvard? He still is. I mean, he's still aggravated with Harvard and the Ivy League schools. And I tweeted, didn't get a big response, but I tweeted, the last thing the average Americans worried uh, the average Americans worried about is some hedge fund guy pissy with an Ivy League school. <laughs> I mean, that's the that's the least of our True. concerns. To be honest with you, oh, I like to see it. But, yeah, yeah, but but you see where I'm headed. I mean, you know that that is a that is the macro of all macro questions. You can only ask it in the hypothetical because there is no real world answer to any of that. Let's go to the phone. Breeze, good morning. I'll tell you, guess again, the bad guys. 
the bad guys. They're the ones that are getting getting it all. They're the ones that are getting paid more than they deserve. So, Breeze, when you when you identify someone as a bad guy, what is the first mark? I mean, what what, what is something that you see in them or those that you automatically and immediately say, "Yeah, I mean, they're probably getting more than their fair share." Well, I, I, I'll tell you what I look for. I look for uh, like I'll give you a perfect example: Bill Gates. He's a bad guy. I can look at him, and I can see the phoniness, and I can listen, and I can see through the evil. I can see what he's doing. I can see where he's buying up farmland. I can see where he's talking about wanting to be a god. I can tell, you know, the guys from BlackRock, I can see right off the bat that those are the bad guys. I mean, a lot of it, you can just watch some of these movies. I don't know if they meant to do it or not. But you look at the guys that are running these these, the military-industrial complex. They're the bad guys. The pharmaceutical companies, they're the bad guys. You look at this, you, know, all of, you, you look at the most powerful people on earth are almost always the bad guys. They all, I mean, it's just the way human history has been forever. You give somebody power, the devil takes it and makes them bad. You know, and I was talking about how evil, the evil that's going around this country. You know, I was thinking about Robert Kennedy and his um, uncle who he got assassinated. And I actually knew uh, Lee Harvey Oswald's company commander in record. And he told me, he said, there's no way Oswald made those shots. And then, you know, um, I had a client of mine, believe it or not, that was a parkway. He was a, he was an internist. So he didn't get to go back into the room, but he talked to all the doctors. And all the doctors were saying that the government is covering this up. He said Kennedy got shot from the front. Have you ever seen the Magruder film? I the brains get blown into the back of into the back of the truck. Have you ever seen a shot that goes in and that goes in from the back and explodes the back of the head and leaves a little hole in the throat? It don't work that way. Anybody shot a deer can tell you that. Anybody just watched a Daggone Arnold Schwarzenegger movie, every time that they do do it, you got a little hole in the front and the back's blown out. So if our government was so evil back in November of sixty three and the CIA killed John F. Kennedy, and I believe they killed him because he was going to get us out of Vietnam. Then you start looking at who are the bad guys. Who are the bad guys that would profit from Vietnam? Who are the people that would lose money if we didn't go to Vietnam? I mean, you know, that's how I look for the bad guys. But there is no doubt in my mind And if, if, if the CIA would kill John F. Kennedy so we could have a war in Vietnam, what would they be willing to do today? And then, you know, going back to um, Mike Rickenbaugh, great guy, he was talking about the mafioso. You know how the mob gets rid of mob leaders that aren't doing what they want them to do? They kill them. So I'm telling you, we are in, a, a, we're living in a world of pure evil right now. And if you don't, if you don't think that our government was, was, was capable of killing, our, if our government is capable of killing a president, what do you think they'll do to you and I? And by the way, Kim, by, by the way, you and I, by the Democrats' definition, are insurrectionists. Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate that. Let's hold on to that for a second. Let's say that Breeze, because I think, I mean, I've read polling. In 1965, very few Americans believe believed the government had a hand in killing JFK. Today, the majority of Americans believe. They don't know what, why, when, where, and how. But, but they don't believe that Harvey Oswald acted alone. Uh, and then you ask, okay, who was involved in it? The government. I mean, obviously the government was involved. So, so let's, let's say that that's where we are as a nation today. 
that means to me the government has lost the moral authority to direct people in a particular direction and convince them, hey, this is in all of our best interests. And that's why somebody like Trump gets elected. I mean, chaos ensues. When the government loses the moral authority, chaos ensues. They've not lost the legal authority, but they've lost the moral authority. And I think that the, the other question, I mean, if, you, if you've landed in a place that convinces you that Lee Harvey Oswald did not act alone and the government had a hand in killing JFK and Vietnam was the reason. I mean, imagine that. Imagine the evil that has to go into the work. If you can justify, I'm not saying they did or didn't. Some people believe this. I'd probably be in that camp. That the reason the government had a hand in killing John F. Kennedy was his policies toward Vietnam were not going to be as generous to the military-industrial complex. Remember, I mean, Tucker basically says the only reason these people may eventually consider killing Trump is he's over the target. I mean, he's not a warmonger. He's a Republican who kind of sort of is a non-interventionist. I don't want to be president of the world. I want to get people out of these wars. Why are we killing all these people? Um, I had a debate earlier this week with a buddy of mine. He's more sympathetic to the military-industrial complex. When I asked him, are we trying to liberate Ukraine or weaken Putin? I mean, you know the answer to that. There's no way that we're making this enormous investment believing that Ukraine is going to become this hopeful democracy. We're trying to weaken Putin. I mean, that's why. Why are we trying to weaken Putin? So we can tell the rest of the world where to stand. I mean, it's the exporting of the American empire. That's why. That's where. That's how. But once again, when, when you can convince the American people that only extremists believe some of this nonsense, you not only have the legal authority, you maintain the moral authority. But once you lose the moral authority, the enforcing of the legal authority becomes unbelievably controversial, and you run into enormous resistance. And once again, you can be that crap crazy in how you believe government should be operated and function, but, but if you've got the moral and legal authority, I mean, you're in like Flynn. But once you lose that moral authority, someone like Trump rears its head, and then they attack him more than any presidential candidate in American history has ever been attacked. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937 is our number scheduled to call. We've not heard yet from Ryan Schmelz about some of the, um, I guess, ballot battles. You know, what we're seeing in these states trying to um, keep Donald Trump off the um, off the ballot. That's an experiment in. I mean, that's the party of voting rights, right? I mean, that, that's oh, the party yeah. that advocates Just for ask them. They'll tell you voter that. infringement and the right of someone um, to cast a ballot, except if you're a Democrat or Republican in Colorado or California or, or some of the others. I think one of the interesting dynamics Republicans find themselves in, how willing and far are you, how far? How willing are you to go as far as the Democrats have gone in, in loosely interpreting or interpreting what, what, the, uh, what the Constitution says about um, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment? If you do that, have you sold your soul, Josh? You're one of these uh, return the favor guys. I mean, you, you said it loudly and proudly that you would fight fire with fire, an eye for an eye. I guess that would be the best um, biblical reference we could come up with. Um, but you do agree that we are not as as, he, as adhering to the Constitution as we could argue we once were. 
Oh yeah, sure. And and like I said the other day, I do think uh you, you know, we should return the favor in kind, but not in this instance. I think this is they've dug a hole for themselves so deep, just let them let them sit in it. You think they've made a grave error? Yes. You think this error has legs? You don't think this is a story for several days and then we move on to something else. I mean, you believe this fundamentally resets the race. You think the Seinfeld watcher, I want to go back to what you said yesterday or the day before, you believe the Seinfeld watcher is now more inclined to be sympathetic to Trump. I, uh, I think so. Okay. Now that's interesting. And he doesn't believe it's a weak phenomenon or a, or a multi-day phenomenon. He believes it is, um, you know, a, a part of the election now. Yeah, and, and, I, and I would tend to believe that too, but I still think that it's time to fight back. It's just been too out of control, and, and if you don't fight back, you're going to keep losing. But, I mean, what does what fighting back accomplish? Oh. I mean, if, if the U.S. Supreme Court, if the U.S. Supreme Court overturns the Colorado decision and Josh is right and the independent voters believe that was just too far. I mean, I don't like Trump. I don't want him to be president. But, but taking his name off the ballot, man, that's just a little bit. I mean, guys, we have a good audience here. But guess what the majority of Americans aren't doing? They aren't watching Fox News. They aren't watching CNN. They aren't watching MSNBC. They aren't reading the New York Times. They aren't listening to conservative talk radio. The majority of Americans are watching Seinfeld and going to ball games and going to church and raising their, their families. And that's going to win the election or not. 150,000 people in about four states who don't watch CNN, don't watch Fox, don't listen to, to conservative talk radio. And I think Josh might be onto something. When they consume the news about Trump being taken off the ballot, they're going to see some, I mean, there's going to be some sympathy given to a guy who's hard to be sympathetic toward. Uh, Fox News Radio's Ryan Schmelz is in our nation's capital. Ryan, good morning. How are you? And is this the last state that will try to take Trump off the ballot? Oh, it's far from the last state that will try to take Trump off the ballot. He's got there's multiple different cases that are pending uh, across the country where they're potentially looking at legal action to remove Trump from the ballot. I think one of the most notable ones that's come up recently is a case in California where you've seen their lieutenant governor uh, sending letters to the secretary of state asking to pretty much use any legal action possible to, to try to remove Trump from the ballot over his actions on January 6th. And in many ways, they're citing the case in Colorado as now legal ground to be able to do that. So you're seeing this domino effect where the case in Colorado has kind of empowered some of these other folks who are trying to remove Trump from the ballot in their respective states. But that's also, you know, considering that the Supreme Court is likely to hear this at some point. And then we'll kind of see if the Colorado uh, you know, rule upholds or not. Ryan, hypothetically, and this is unfair to you, you're a journalist, I'm not. <laughs> What if the what if the Supreme Court doesn't decide to pick it up? Yeah, that that's that 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 would be fascinating because then I I believe he pretty much would be off the ballot completely in in Colorado on the Republican side, and then we'd have to probably look to to see what the Republican Party of Colorado does to respond to that, which is I believe they're considering now transitioning to a caucus instead of doing a traditional primary. So. Uh, I think it would be very fascinating if the Supreme Court does not pick this up, but I, it's hard to see that not happening. Well, so we'll explain. Thank you, Ron. Appreciate your time. Appreciate all you did for us this year, and uh, and Merry Christmas to you and your family, sir. Hey, it was always a blessing to come on here. Thank you so much, and Merry Christmas. Thank you. Ron Schmelz, Fox News Radio. So so let's play this out, Josh. Get, get, get the mic. I need your help here. So, so let's say the Supreme Court doesn't intervene. 
And, and there's there's a little bit of me that says, are are there are there rascals on the Supreme Court? Because if there are rascals on the Supreme Court, you know what the rascals may do? Let's let this play out. Let's let's let a state Supreme Court not allow voters to vote for who they want to. Let's let this play out. I mean, it's an exercise in political stupidity. Because then but, you'll see how the voters actually react to but that. But, I mean, we're talking about having caucuses. But think about this, guys. I mean, I'm not, I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a judge, obviously. But if he's not allowed to be on the primary ballot, he's certainly not going to be allowed on the general election ballot. So if the court decides not to intervene, I mean, if the court has rascals on it and the rascals say, eh, I know what we should do, but we're not going to do it. We're going to watch this thing really <laughs> blow up. I mean, we're going to watch our country be fundamentally changed as it never has in our history. We're going to let states and their liberal Supreme Courts decide that Republicans can't vote for the guy that they most want to vote for. And we're going to let them have at it. I mean, I know what we're constitutionally obligated to do, but nobody else pays any attention to the Constitution. Why should we? And out of that comes Trump not on the Michigan ballot, not on the Minnesota ballot, not on the California ballot. Let let those Democrat Supreme Courts and uh, and delegations or whatever own it let them own it and, and let 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 the, the let the the democrat win the white house with no opposition why why do they win the white house with no opposition because trump's not on the ballot in many of these states i mean you, you can't vote for donald trump i mean it, it'll probably be states he doesn't win the electoral vote anyway i mean i get that but imagine imagine if the supreme court of the united states has a rascal or two on that court, and they say, hey, this is what you want. I mean, if you believe this is the American way, I mean, if I were if I were a conservative justice on that court, I might do that. I might say, uh, if you believe that this is the American way, and the American way includes states telling voters of a political party they can't vote for the guy they most want to vote for, because you've convicted him of a crime he's not been charged with. How does anybody ever call themselves a Democrat again? I mean, you own it. You took the guy that they want to vote for off the ballot. They didn't take him off. You did. I mean, the Republican judges didn't do this. The Democrat judges demanded of Republican voters to vote for somebody other than who they wanted to vote for. How in the hell is that American? How in God's name? So, so that's what I'm saying. I mean, I, I believe that the the Republican-nominated conservative Supreme Court, because we do have a conservative Supreme Court, I think they'll intervene and do the constitutionally right thing, correct thing. But a bit of me says, I wish they wouldn't. I wish they wouldn't. I wish, let let the Democrat Party, the Party of Voting Rights, the party of dignity and respect and, and you know, picking a man up by the, the, the party of voting rights. Let that party own what they just did. It should be the end of the Democrat Party as we know it, but it wouldn't be because Trump derangement syndrome right. is real. Let's go to the phone. Jim in Florence, good morning. Hey, good morning, guys. So if we look at these justices in Colorado, um, it was, what, a four to three decision, correct? Correct. And all Seven of them are Democrat, or well, excuse me, are appointed by a Democrat governor. Well, the four 
my understanding is the four that voted for this were from Ivy League schools. The three that voted against this were from uh, uh, the state law schools. Uh, should we look at, especially in South Carolina, should we look at banning anyone from Ivy League reaching the bench? Um, so is this really a takeover by the Democrats or is this a takeover of Ivy League by uh, a takeover of Ivy League of the Democrat Party and using that apparatus to to stranglehold, you know, to take over government? Um, but I'll say this, Ken, the precedent is the Supreme Court won't take this case, because if we look at that Texas case where they sued all the states over the 2020 election, um, the Supreme Court refused to hear it, but the problem was is when states sue other states, the only court with jurisdiction is the Supreme Court, but they refused to take the case. So I think we need to operate with the understanding that the Supreme Court will not take this case. Thank you, Jim. Thank you, Jim. But, but see, and, and I, we're splitting hairs here. The courts historically have not gotten involved in elections, but they have in voting rights. They're not the same. I mean, the court, Jim's right. I mean, the court has gotten involved in, in, in voting rights issues. They've shied away from being a part of elections. The, 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 a lot of the Trump challenges were election-related, not voting rights. I mean, I know that I'm splitting hairs here. I said it on the front end. I'm splitting hairs here. Elections are about voting rights. Voting rights are affecting the outcome of elections. But, but I think the courts have some gray there. Is this a matter of election interference, or is this a matter of voting rights? Uh, you go back to the case, uh, the Reynolds Sims case that we've quoted many times on this show, one man, one vote. You know, not one county, one, one senator, but rather one man, one vote. That would have been an Alabama decision that came as a result of the civil rights legislation passed in, in 64. Um, I'm being a bit of a, yeah. a lecturer here now for a second. Um, <laughs> but in this case, we're talking about you know, the well, U.S. Constitution. I think amendment. we are. I mean, I, you know, once again, I, I mean, the courts can do what the courts choose to do. We've seen that. Yeah, but Colorado's Supreme Court is using the, the, the 14th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution to justify their they, They're using, to me, they're using the word engage in an insurrection. Right. Conviction, charge. It's a stretch. It's a very much, I mean, it's unconstitutional. And, and once again, I think the courts will. Now, I want to go back to Jim's point about the Ivy Leagues. I, I, far be it for me to pat myself on the back or myself any credit for anything because i'm such a humble man you know that by now oh, yes um yeah, no doubt but but some moron said five years ago these damn ivy league schools are affecting this country far more than you know they are i read an article might have been politico one day about how many i'll tell you the story jake sullivan jake sullivan had poetry read at his wedding by hillary clinton that kind of led me to plunder around a little bit. And next thing you know, the overwhelming majority of big decisions made in American newsrooms are made by Ivy League graduates. The majority of government agencies, mid-level, upper-level management, are Ivy League graduates. I mean, the Ivy League graduate is a small percentage of the American population. They are an enormous percentage of how the narrative is created and how our educational system and government operates take a break back in a few I, I, I said on the front end i was splitting hairs i mean i i warned you that we're splitting hairs when we start talking about elections and voting rights and you know the, the case that i refer to is the um is the Reynolds sims case when the when the u.s supreme court said it, it's got to be one man one vote of the constitution and that was I mean, that was a constitutional question 
I understand what Jim's saying, that he's exactly right, uh, that the courts have always tried to stay out of election cases. I told Rev, um, when, when the election of 2020 became in question, I to, and it started referring to the courts, I told Rev one day, I said, the courts aren't going to touch that. I mean, they, they, they may believe something doesn't make sense. They may, somebody may show them some discovery material that says, you know, the, um, the percentage of people in Wisconsin that voted went from 69% historical average to 92%, but the courts aren't going to open that Pandora's box. I mean, they, they just, that's not their job. I mean, if somebody cheated somebody else, then, you know, figure out a way to stop them from cheating or out cheat, you know, steal it from them. I mean, if you believe they stole it, steal it back from them um, next time. And I'm not saying they said that. And certainly judiciary is more serious than that. But but I still believe that's the face they put on it. That That's the way their, their response was. I would be remiss if I ended the show talking about elections, talking about judiciary without telling you thank you. And I mean that. We've concluded another here, another year here on the airways at Community Broadcasters. Uh, it's been a good year. Josh came on board. Um, you know, Rev has been the staple. He always is uh, the dependable sidekick. And um, and we've had a good year. We really and truly have had a good year at Community Broadcasters. I want to thank everybody that has helped make this possible. Sponsors, listeners, callers. Um, I mean, if I started naming, I'd forget somebody and they stopped listening or stop sponsoring. <laughs> so I want to go down the name of um, of adding list. Josh, good to have you. And I mean this sincerely. I know that you're still trying to wonder what exactly is their strategy? They don't do it like everybody else does, but you've been a very, a very welcomed and positive addition. Absolutely. And I appreciate the contributions you make on and, and off the air. And I mean that, um, seriously, Merry Thank Christmas you. to you, Rev. Uh, you and I are kind of, um, old hats at this, but, um, been doing it Merry a while. Christmas to you Merry and Christmas appreciate you. all that you've done on behalf of this feeble attempt at, um, at radio brilliance. I would say goodbye and Merry Christmas. We got about what? Three minutes. I think Bruce can do it better than I. And to antagonize. <laughs> no, and I agree with you on to, this. This to, is a good one, and it's to, fun. To antagonize. Great way to end. Our Republican Springsteen-hating <laughs> listeners. In the spirit of Christmas, I will agree yeah. that this is a great way. Merry Christmas. Santa Claus is coming to town. See you in January of 2024. Checking it twice